This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Dread it. Run from it. Destiny arrives all the same. And now it's here. Or should I say... I am. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Nothing much. What's going on? I feel like it's been forever since we last recorded. It has been a very long while. Um, yeah, so the original week we were supposed to record of this episode, I got a chance to actually go home for Thanksgiving, so that didn't happen. And then the next week, uh, my family kindly gave me a... a you know, a horrible illness while I was there. Really so I was sick the next week we were supposed to record. And now we are finally here. And I, I'm just hoping some disaster doesn't befall us. Um, but we are here to talk about uh, the part one of the great culmination of the MCU with Avengers Infinity War. And to help us talk about that, we are joined by our friend Sam Dodson. Welcome to Franchise Steak, Sam. Hey, guys. How's it going? It is going very well. Uh, and you want to just briefly introduce yourself to our, our listeners? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Sam Dotson. I am a cinephile in the making, and I am currently uh, going to college and majoring in digital video production. So, filmmaker in the process as well. Um, nice. Avid, avid nerd at heart. Everything Star Wars, Marvel. Not a huge fan of Harry Potter. Sorry. For all those people that love that. This is good. See you, Muggle. We'll just leave now. Okay. <laughs> Um, and yeah, that's, that's just a little bit about me. Nothing too horribly special. All right. So before we get the main review, I want to ask you guys, uh, if you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Um, so short five-star review would be very helpful to us to help you find us. And, uh, briefly going to some of the behind the scenes, uh, stories of this film. So in late, uh, 2014, which was a good ways before the release of Age of Ultron, it was announced the next uh, Avengers movie would be a two-parter, or next Avengers movies, Avengers Infinity War Part 1 and 2, are uh, released in consecutive years. They will be inspired by the 1991 comics arc The Infinity Gauntlet by Jim Starlin. Then in early 2015, uh, still a, a year prior to the re- release of Civil War, the Russo brothers were announced as the directors of both films, um, which were going to be shot simultaneously, like The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit movies and all that. Um and Christopher Marcus and Steve McFeely were hired to write both of those films. Uh, Marvel staff writer and Thor and Thor Ragnarok co-writer Eric Pearson was also brought on early to help with the you know garg- gargantuan task of crafting the narrative for both of these films. Scott Derrickson, uh, James Gunn, and Taika Waititi uh, were also brought in at various points to help maintain con- you know continuity with the characters from their films. Um, apparently, Taika missed his um, his meetings. <laughs> In uh, 2016, it was announced that the second film would no longer be called Infinity War Part Two, uh, because they were going to because they were going to be two separate and complete films. Uh, but we didn't get a title of, uh, for that film until the first uh, teaser for Endgame in what, early early 20, 2019? Yeah, yeah, I want to say it was somewhere around there. So this movie is essentially just a culmination of the whole series. So pretty much everybody you love is returning, so long as they haven't died. I, I counted once. I think there's about like twenty actors that would generally appear above the title, and then you look at another dozen, yeah. like respected character actors and stuff. It's crazy. So well, just look up this lit, like this cast list on IMDb, and scroll through it. It's insane. Uh, as for, I'm just gonna read through some of the new characters who came on. Uh, you have Peter Dinklage as 
Itri, um, Terry Notary, uh, who people who watch the, uh, like the Hobbit behind the scenes features may know. He works a lot with, uh, Peter Jackson and kind of creating the yeah, body language yeah, for the, those the creatures. The movement coach and all that. Yeah. Uh, he played Cole Obsidian. Um, Tom Vaughn Lawler as Ebony Maw. Carrie Coon as Proxima Midnight. Michael James Shaw as Corvus Glaive. And while the character isn't new, um, we have uh, Ross Marquand, who's a famous voice impressionist, uh, coming on to play Red Skull. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they got a... Uh... Hugo Weaving back yeah. when I first saw it. He's pretty fantastic. Uh, although I, I miss the the practical effects. I like it more than the CGI. But I'm just happy we get to see him back at all, and it's a really cool use of him. Uh, and then of course, we do have some cameos with this film. Uh, we have Kenneth Branagh, who is the distress caller in the beginning. Uh, obviously, you have Stan Lee here as the bus driver in this film. And apparently there was a scene shot with John Favreau uh, as Happy Hogan and then Joe Russo uh, in a little cameo appearance as a paparazzi f- uh, photographer, but the scene was cut from the release. Uh, but the cameo that I would have loved most, but that was never to be, was uh, David Cross was originally invited to make an appearance as Tobias Funke, his character from Arrested Development. Um, <laughs> however, there was a scheduling conflict Tobias Funke is still in the movie, though. When they're walking through the collector's... Uh, or when they're walking through nowhere, and you see all of the different specimens that he has in containers, if you look in the background, you can see Tobias Funke painted blue in his short cut-off shorts, and it is freaking <laughs> incredible. Wow. So as far as filming, uh, filming was pr- primarily done in the Pinewood Atlanta studios, uh, where most of the MCU films are being shot at around this time. Trent Opalock returned from Winter Soldier and Civil War to serve as director of photography. Um, this was the first film ever to be shot entirely on IMAX cameras. Uh, Dunkirk the previous year had been shot about 75% IMAX, um, though this one was shot on the digital IMAX uh, instead of the film version that Nolan uses. Another big change that the Russos and Opalock implemented in their filming style was using a single camera approach for the, for the, uh, the two films uh, Infinity War and Endgame, as opposed to the three camera style they used on Winter Soldier and and uh, Civil War, which which basically means that while while filming on set for Infinity War and Endgame, the scenes were shot with only one camera at a time, as opposed to using three different cameras simultaneously uh, to get the kind of handheld cinema verite approach they used on those previous films. Like most shaky cam, uh, any most handheld films these days are shot with multiple cameras at once, and also even a lot of like uh, more standard films they use multiple cameras. Uh, but usually the more visually interesting films are shot with a single camera at a time. And, and despite initially planning to shoot the uh, the two films simultaneously, it proved far too difficult to juggle you know, such uh, two such massive films at the same time. So the schedule was shifted uh, to film them back to back instead. Uh, as for post-production, um, there's really not too much to get into. It, it gets kind of interesting for Endgame, but the, the biggest, like the craziest thing about, the post-production was just editing this film together Um, because due to the like the several narratives that are running concurrently with each other a lot of the editing was just finding out how to cut these four different not isolated or standalone things but these very particular narratives together Um, Jeffrey Ford and Matthew Schmidt were the editors for both Infinity War and Endgame and Ford said that there was a or he said that 
they kept cutting until very late because we kept having ideas and thoughts and ended up restructuring the film a couple times until it sort of clicked. Uh, he said that it was about adjusting the rhythm of the film and designing it so that it has dynamics so the characters hand off to each other in a way that feels like you, you have peaks and valleys of excitement and emotion. So it was really finding the rhythms of that, which involved breaking up stories in slightly different ways than we had seen in previous uh, in the screenplay phase in the earlier edit, and that's all it was really. Uh, and apparently between the two films, they had not over 900 hours of footage assembled. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of the post-production was just taking in massive, just ungodly amounts of time and be like, how do we put this together in a movie? And as for what's the edit was done, as for the, the music, Alan Silvestri, who had composed the score for the Avengers and, uh, the first Avenger as well, uh, he was brought back on to, to score this last two part, um, he started recording in January of 2018 and finished in March, uh, he said it was a, a different experience than anything he had done before, even in terms of like working in the MCU, because he was having to just having to musically deal with a lot more tonal variety than he had ever had before. And then after this incredibly enormous film was finally put together, uh, it had its release uh, on April 23rd, 2018 at the Dolby Theater. Uh, and then it was released here in the U.S. April 27th, 2018. All right, so moving into the main discussion, uh, let's start with you, Sam. Uh, what was your first experience with this movie, and uh, has your opinion on it changed at all in the, uh, I guess, what's it been, two years since? Yeah, or two years. A year and a half, about? Well, it, a year and a half, yeah, a year and a half. You're, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, my 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 whole like kind of relationship with this movie, I saw it actually, surprisingly enough, once in the theater. I know it's, it's insane, because I've seen pretty much every other MC movie at least two or three times, but... Um, I was among pretty much every single moviegoer. I was shocked and depressed for many weeks about the ending of that movie. Um, I wasn't sure how I felt about it, which is may maybe the reason why I didn't go see it in the theater again. Um, but since then, I've seen it many, 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 many other, many more times, and my love has only grown for it since then. So nice. And what about you, James? Yeah, so like Sam, I actually only saw it once in the theater as well. Uh, although that was that was no like uh, indictment against the film. I rarely see movies more than once now, and that's really sad. I think the last time I saw a movie multiple times in the theater was probably The Last Jedi. I may do it again for Star Wars because it's Star Wars, but uh, but I really really loved this the first time I saw it, um, and. That's pretty much been maintained since that first viewing. Um, there were a lot of things that stuck out to me. Uh, one was just like how it was structured. It took me a bit to realize what they were doing with it. Just the idea that it's essentially four different stories just running concurrently. Uh, I thought that was really cool. Uh, it kind of broke up a little bit of a, of what might feel formulaic at this point um and then the ending it was just so like i i feel like everybody's theater viewing like their memory of it is almost completely defined by like how did the audience react to the end how did you react to the end you know and and uh my audience didn't report or i didn't uh, disappoint there was a there was a small child crying in the front of the theater you know <laughs> so that was pretty great um uh, 
Yeah, so I, I really, really loved it the first time I saw it, uh, and I've only continued to enjoy it. Yeah, um, so unlike you, Normies, I saw it five times in theaters. Oh my god. And, uh, yeah, and it, it hurt a lot. Um, and I just, I, I had to keep going just to feel something, you know? And it was, but yeah, it was, it's just one of those film experiences that you're just, you're not ready for, and... Uh, even even if you've seen it before and you are ready for it, it still just kind of devastates you. I remember pretty much every time walking out of the theater, just kind of like stumbling to my car. Like, I don't I don't want to live anymore. What do I do with my life now? And yeah, there, there was one viewing where there was like a, a woman like sobbing a couple rows down. Like it's 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 a it's a crazy rough film. Um yeah, so this is currently uh holding the record for the the most times I've seen a film in theaters. And I'm I don't know that I'm ever gonna break that 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 one. Yeah. So Moving into the main discussion on the film, just uh, where do we even start on this? There's cr- so much in this. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like I remember leading into Civil War, like when cat when the cast um yeah uh, cast announcements would be released, and we're like, this movie is the biggest thing ever. How can they possibly juggle that cast? And then then the, you know the same thing happened leading up to this movie. There's even more cast members, and then obviously the same thing happened leading to the, uh, Endgame. It's like the Roosters are, are like literally crafting like the biggest films ever made, you know, sequentially. And, and it's, it's such a mind bogglingly huge narrative. As you said, James, it, it, it juggles all these multiple, you know, side side plots and quests that all are still feeding directly into the main, uh, main story. And it, it, I think, it, I think it does so pretty seamlessly. Um, so shoot, uh, here, I'll let you start, Sam. <laughs> what do you like about this movie? Um, well, like you said, Gabe, I, I just love, you know, obviously there's about, you know, four to five different storylines. You know, you have the stuff on Titan, you have the stuff, um, you know, with Wanda and Vision, and then when Cap comes into the story, and then you have the stuff, the whole side quest with, you know, Rocket and Groot and Thor. Um, I think that it, it very, very seamlessly interwoven interwove whatever the word is all of them together um um but yeah no i just i i really enjoyed all i really enjoyed how everything came together especially in the end in the end with wakanda and titan and um i think the one thing that stands out especially after this most recent viewing to me was the the and hu- the humor and banter between all the heroes um i always forget how much how much i laugh and how just how delightful it is to watch all of these actors come together, all these heroes come together and just mix and mesh and, you know, do whatever they do together. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that stands out to me for this film is just the, the cast and their interaction, basically. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of great ke- uh, chemistry and quips and whatnot. And I, I think this is probably the least, uh, probably the, the, the the least great total balance of at least the first three uh, Russo brother films. But even then it's still, it's still, I mean, compared to most blockbusters, I find the tonal balance, you know, pretty remarkable. What about you, James? Yeah. um, Just to, I guess while we're on this subject of the, the narratives um, that are kind of running concurrently with each other, something that I really like about this is that there's not exactly that one, primary narrative like 
this is really Thanos's story. It's about him collecting these gems, and we've mm-hmm. got we've got these different um, groups. I, I think the Russos make the really smart. Well, and and the writers, uh, Marcus and McFeely, um, make the really smart decision in in sectioning stories off. Um, but what's really interesting is that while there's none of those three or four, I guess we've we've got. Um, Tony, Peter, and Doctor Strange, and we've got the Guardians and Thor, and we've got... So I guess that's... Well, then the Guardians and Thor end up splitting up. Um, so yeah, I get... Yeah, there's it, Cap and Vision and Wakanda. And yeah, so, so there's usually about, like, four things at once going on. Um, and what's cool to me is none of those four are really the the main one. Anything... Like, it's we've got Thanos, who is almost acting as the protagonist of this film. Like he's, he is leading it. Um, and he's just zigzagging through these different stories. And so like, that's the story. His goal is the story. And, and these different narratives that are running are kind of just facilitating anywhere that like he's coming, you know, even, even though he's absent from some of them for a while, like they're constantly like, the entire motivation of their part is still some sort of reaction to what he's doing. And so uh, it's just a really unique way of, of like giving a film momentum It's just creating these different pockets and then having the main through line just kind of zig and zag between it all. Yeah. And listening to a lot of interviews with the Russos like that, that was a very intentional thing of making structuring it so that, you know, if you look at a certain way, Thanos is, is the protagonist and, he literally just goes through all the steps of a hero's journey. Like there's something I noticed in this last viewing um, after he takes the uh, Tesseract from Loki and when he, he crushes it, it's, it's, you hear his theme playing underneath. Like the movie is, is, you know, even from the start is, is kind of, you know, telling us that something that this movie is just different from the, from the, you know, the other ones we've seen. And you can follow where he has, you know, he had, he, he's, you know, various victories and setbacks. Then he has the moment of great, you know, great personal sacrifice where, where his resolve stands true. And then, you know, the final challenge at the end where he's almost defeated and, but, you know, it still emerges victorious, you know, through his great will. And like, it, it, it plays out like that, but it's also done in a very subtle way to where if you're coming to this movie expecting, you know, the next Avengers movie, it keeps that con going right up until the last shot. And you realize, wait, this this isn't this isn't an Avengers movie anymore, and and I, I think it play, it plays both sides so well. And like, if you if you don't even care to look that deeply and just want to you know watch it as an Avengers movie, it functions as as that. But if you want to you know dig deeper into the character actual character arc, I think you know there's so much going on with Thanos. And since we're on the subject of Thanos, uh, what do you how do you guys feel about this guy? He is big and scary. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is i mean you know up until this point all we've really had is you know that quick little glance in the avengers and then you know that little short uh what three minute scene from guardians and Where then, he was awesome though yes yes uh, he was amazing in that scene loved all the facials and everything and then of course you know his the final the uh post-credit sequence at the end of age of ultron which by the way at the time was high <laughs> when that when that, that scene that got me excited for that but yeah, watching it this la- in this last few post infinity war it means a whole lot more oh yeah oh yeah um but for me i mean thanos he's one of the 
I mean, other than maybe I would say Vulture, Vulture and Homecoming. Um, he is really the only MCU vi- one of the only MCU villains that I really, really feel for, and it kind of goes back to the whole protagonist thing with you know how they kind of set him up to be a kind of protagonist for the movie. Um, and so I, he's I really sympathize with him, like in a way, you know, obviously not him wiping out half the universe that part but you know but you understand his reasoning you understand why he's doing it and then you know with gamora and you know what he has to sacrifice for that i mean it's kind of heartbreaking honestly you know what what he does and what he has to go through and i don't know i i i I have a love-hate relationship with him obviously because he killed all my favorite heroes and he killed (laughs) little peter parker um but um but no i yeah i love the guy i think he's he's a fantastic villain yeah i was that that was definitely um that was my biggest takeaway i guess i i may have already said that about the all of the narratives being juggled but now that i think about it that was the thing that maybe not surprised me the most but relieved me the most because i went in knowing like this this movie kind of it, it rests on thanos working i'm sure he could be not not a great villain and the movie would still be enjoyable but for this movie to really work the villain has to really work especially considering he's going to deal with all of the fre- all of the pressure of being being a film's villain um like if you are the lead villain there is a certain amount of pressure uh but just he's also the villain that we've been building up to um and it was at the end of that first scene that I feel like I, I kind of wiped the sweat off my brow. I was like, okay, they, they did it. Like, this is a legitimate, this is a legitimate character. Uh, and one of the things I really enjoy about him uh, is that level of, like, understanding his point. Um, what I think is more than that, it's like, it's not, you don't, you don't just have to convince me that, that it makes sense. You also have to convince me that he's bought into it. You have to convince me that... Um, he truly believes in what he's doing. Um, and there were like, there were different interviews with Feige and, and the writers and stuff beforehand were saying, where they were saying like, yeah, we, we really want to focus on his motivation. You know, a good villain rarely thinks that they're the villain. And it almost sounded like the language used like leading up into Dr. Strange with Cassilius. And I was like, oh man, we've been here before. Uh, so I, it, none of this was really enough to, to kind of mitigate any of my concerns leading into it but to me what thanos is is like if you took that one amazing scene with Cassilius and dr strange but then spread that throughout a movie like really build a character around emotion and motivations that make sense and a character who's completely bought into their own reasoning and is emotionally invested in their plan like you can't just have a villain who thinks that they aren't the villain. You have to like explore that and let the movie explore it, and and so that's that's the reason why for me he's he's the best villain of the series, just because the movie treats him like a full character, like it gives him equal footing with Iron Man, and that stuff like that is just I love that. Yeah, he's not Malekith from Thor: The Dark World, <laughs> where he's just a cardboard cutout of a villain. Yeah, and. A lot of credit has to go to Josh Brolin um, and, and the incredible mocap work. I'm not sure which which you know effects house did the the uh, the effects on Thanos, but I think he's probably the best full CGI character. I would, I would say since uh, probably uh, Gollum in an unexpected journey. 
Yeah. Like I even like the the apes in the Planet of the Apes movies are incredible, but I, I think he's better than that. Ooh. Um, uh, I, I, uh, better than. <laughs> I mean, we're 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 talking you know top three. Um, either way, uh, yeah, it's it's so good and like every emotion he's feel like I'm watching it closely and there's like one shot where it's still like some of the best I've ever seen. But I could maybe see a little bit of CGI in there, but for the most part, it, he it's he's just Thanos, and. And you completely forget that you're looking at a CGI character, and you're just you know listening to what he's saying, and and he's honestly just a fascinating character to watch just in this movie alone. Where well, well, I, I, the thing, the way he kind of vacillates between amiability and just like a really just a douche, where he's just out to hurt people, is is I find just ca- ca- totally fascinating. Where like sometimes he's just kind of kind and talking and being fatherly, then the next he's torturing his daughter. Um, but I think it is like, I think he's like kind of amiable when he holds all the power. Um, but he gets like re- really irritated if someone actually stands in his way. Like he enjoys a fight, but it's that that's like the entire time it's knowing he's going to win. But if anyone actually does something to cross him, like when um, Heimdall sends Hulk away, he actually gets angry and just kills him. But other times, often other times where he's like, I'm a you know, benevolent God, even though you stood against me, I'll, I'll spare you and let you live and just kind of leave you because you're not relevant to me. But just the way he could be kind of honorable and above it all, but also incredibly petty. It was just so interesting to watch. Yeah, the the way he holds himself is something that I think, again, like it gives him that added personality uh, that a lot of these villains can sometimes miss. He he treats himself like he is this you know benevolent god um, who's making all of these sacrifices. You know, he, all he wants is a you know some appreciation. Why aren't you thankful? Exactly. You know, look at what all he's done. But um, but he's also just like so full of himself. Uh, like this, you know, like I forget the qualities he he ascribes to uh, Gamora. When he, you know, he's like a uh, strong, strong me, me. yeah. <laughs> Uh, like her one, you know, negative trait is the one she didn't inherit from him, and he's like literally the worst father. And, and like the, the, the sequence with him and Gamora in the throne room, where he's playing the patient, understanding father to his ungrateful, foolish child, and it's it's such a. I think that the writing, you know, going to, to Marcus and McFeely is so good. You know, I, I hated my life. You told me that too every day for twenty years. Like he's being, not, you know, he's being kind, he's being understanding, but firm, and you know, teaching her the way to go. But it's all seeped in such total arrogance to where he can't c- comprehend, you know, a worldview outside of his own, and you know, and not even, you know, not just for him, but for, you, for for the entire everyone, the entire universe. It's it's so, so narcissistic that nothing they have to say could ever actually register with him. All he's doing is just trying to convince everyone else, you know, how right he is, or if he can't if he can't convince them, kill him. And also just the way he deals with other people, like he has his special relationship with Gamora, where it, it is a lot. I can't say kinder, but less anta- antagonistic. But then, like you look at the way he treats Gamora, where he's so casual, but also, like he's he 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 doesn't hurt Gamora, but he's completely fine with 
you know, hurting her emotionally. Like he doesn't actually care about her, you know, her actual personal well-being. He, he just doesn't actually hurt her physically. But and you see that when he um you know, after talking, you know, trying to reason with her, like, oh, you're not listening, then he takes her to Nebula and just casually tortures her because he knows that's gonna hurt Gamora. Like he's not gonna hurt her, but he'll hurt her through other people. It's so manipulative and uh, I guess he does, like in his own mind, I'm sure he cares for his other children in some way, but the way he has that special relationship with Gamora and like where everyone else is expendable and he doesn't like, he, he absolutely despises Nebula, but he doesn't kill her either. Yeah. And I'm glad. Um, I think that also plays into the fact that I'm really glad that they did that whole scene and showing the, the backstory of how Gamora like came to be with Thanos with like, you know, the, that whole flashback of him going back and wiping out half her planet. I think that, you know, ties into the whole emotional connection of why I think, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. Why I think Gamora's death is all the more heartbreaking is because of that first scene of that scene showing, you know, whenever he's like, whenever he gives her the knife, you know, and he's like balance as all things should be, you know, and then he, and then they, you know, he murders half the people and he's like, no focus, you know, and he's, I, I think that scene in particular, for me, at least, I think without that scene really set up their relationship really well and really kind of gave you that emotional pull. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, to, to connect with him and, under, and understand kind of where their relationship even started in the first place. Yeah, I, I think the, the soul stone is also just, it's a really cool narrative device where it's like, it's a litmus test for him. Um, it, it helps convey to the, cause without that, if that's not how the film set up the rules, the audience could walk away and be like, Oh man, you know what a, what a lying piece of garbage. But like the fact that the film puts in place in context rules for how it how it can be received and like just with the emotion of the scene the fact he gets it it validates that there was definitely like some form of genuine love for her you know so and that kind of reinforces the idea that this the gay was saying earlier of this being a, a hero's journey where you have a a quantifiable sacrifice and that's something that I've heard criticized, like probably one of the major criticisms I've heard, like from like even Marvel fans were like, they're saying like, how could this movie call that love? And, um, you know, one person, you know, what if an, an abused child is watching this movie and like this movie is telling them that this, that abuse is actually love. And uh, for, for one, I think this movie it very clearly situates Thanos as the bad guy and every other character that we know and love is saying, yeah, this is wrong. Um, like, so there's that, like if you, if you look at the context of the film, there's, there's no question what he's doing is wrong, but I think even beyond that, like the simple fact is even in the most abusive, you know, parent child relationships or maybe not, maybe, maybe there's some where it doesn't exist, but even in the, a lot of the incredibly abusive parent child relationships, the parent still thinks they love the child. And that's, that's just a fact that we have to reckon with. And this isn't a kid's film. And like, if if you're not emotionally mature enough to tell that, you know, to see, to hear him call it love. Um, and without, you know, saying, Oh my gosh, think of the children. Then like, I, I, I think kids, uh, this isn't a kid's movie and maybe, it's 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 trying to deal with you know far more complicated human emotions i think than a simple children's film and i think it does that 
very well. Yeah, ultimately, as I said, this is it's a this is a real thing that happens with people, and they their relationships are infinitely complicated and layered. And I think this just the scene where uh, Gamora thinks she kills him and she just breaks down weeping and like, is she crying out of sadness? You know, out of relief from the fear and the specter. She's you know, you know it could be either. It's probably a bit of both and. Like, who knows what she's feeling in that moment? Like, who knows? Like, you don't live with someone as your father without, you know, forming some form of attachment to them. It's just, it's complicated and it's crazy and it's hard and it's heartbreaking. And I love it for that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I thought James was going to say something. I was going to let him go. (laughs) Oh, sorry. No. Do you want to, you want to jump in? Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I just wanted to say that like i think i think one example i'm trying to think of like another example to kind of counteract the you know the whole relationship the whole kind of really messed up relationship between um you know gamora and thanos is like i i first one that pops in my mind is like the abusive relationship uh from like it for beverly and her dad how her dad is a very abusive father but she but he thinks that it's love like he's like, you know, he calls her his little girl, you know, he's like saying that it's love, you know, and all that, but it's kind of a really messed up form of love. You know, it's not like, it's not like the, you know, like they, they believe that they, that, that it's love. Does that make sense? Is that a good, is that, is that a, is that a bad example? <laughs> I think that the difference here is that um, it seemed way more, it's much more obsessive and selfish in it. And also just way grosser. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's like a here, probably bad example, but I'm, that was just, I was just no. But I, I I definitely see where you're coming. Like there's this <laughs> there is this idea of presenting these these characters, and not like like you can say that someone to some extent loves someone else without condoning anything that they're doing. I think the most important thing is that he believes he loves her. Yeah, but, with everything he has, which is what you know activates the social. Like obviously, you know, it's not true sacrificial love in the sense that we would not 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 the type of love that we hold up as an ideal it's but there are like yeah, well, there, there are... i i don't like i i don't feel like the movie was setting up that if you think you love them enough like to me there seemed to be something transcendent about the the power of the stone there like it it sees it it cuts to the individual, you know. It's not fooled by how hard we think about something. So, I do think that there is, like, there is a level of like sacrificial love in that. Like, with his last conversation with her, um, after he he snaps and he sees her there, like when he says it cost him everything, I, I think there's a level in which we are supposed to believe that, like where you know, because when we see him in Endgame, spoilers for that, he he doesn't seem to just be having a, a great time. Like, it seems like he's now having to live after this loss. Like, I, I think one of the things that I love about Thanos is he genuinely... I mean, it's, it's, a very, it's a very twisted version of, like, the... I mean, the Christian faith, the idea of a, of a father sacrificing the child for the sake of others, you know? And so I, I think that almost to an aspect, that's how he sees himself as someone who's sacrificing such a greatness for for others. And now and now in his case, he's having to go off and live as a hermit 
under the assumption that, you know, I, I did this thing and I'm not even there for the glory of it, you know, because ultimately he wasn't really after any sort of self, like there there's, I don't even know how, how selfish the character ultimately is. Um, he wanted to help the universe. He wasn't trying to do it for like self-preservation. He was trying to do it to help everybody. And he assumed that they would be grateful and, and then, you know, and from then on enact whatever, you know, enact the things necessary to curb, you know, curb population or whatever afterwards. Like he was so convinced that this is obviously an awesome idea. And once they see, they'll see kind of thing. Yeah. But all that to say, I just, I think that the movie frames it in where it's, we have to reckon with the idea that there is some sort of genuine love there. Like that, the just the way, the way his final scene after the snap is presented and just the mechanics of the stone itself. Uh, and I think that makes like that, that puts the character when you, you know, you say your villain truly believes in what they're doing. This actually test that out like let's see if this is the case or if you're just you know if you're just trying to fabricate some some compelling enough villain who can kind of carry a movie but sorry no like we've we've proven it uh in the case of thanos i think you know it's the the love of a man whose casual work day is slaughtering billions on you know per planet like he's not a normal person I think that that's a good way to move into the character of Gamora. Um, and I think she's at her best in this movie. Definitely. Just there's the scene. There's one scene with Quill that I think is pretty exceptional where she, when she asks him, you know, if I get captured to kill me, and it, it, both her and Pratt's performance is really good. And it, it, it just, I don't know. It's, it's such a, a like a tender emotional scene. I, I love that these Marvel films are able to just stop and have you know these quiet, deeply personal moments. Just the interaction. I, I think this is also probably uh, Quill at his best. If I, um, you know, he, he gets a lot of flack from people, but I think there are in scenes like this where you know he's you see he's trying to be goofy and trying to lighten the mood, but she keeps kind of bringing him back, and ultimately, like where it matters, he's there for her. And it's just really cool to see how he's grown up to this point. I think I think Pratt is a. I mean, and you guys, may, I think you guys mentioned this in your um, Guardians Volume Two and Volume One um, episode. But I think Pratt is a pretty incredible dramatic actor when it comes down to it. You know, whenever having the chance to really shine in those moments. I mean, you know, you have that moment when Gamora's, like you said, he's Gamora's trying to get his attention. He's like. Are the you know where should I put these grenades? Are these the kind of these are the kind of blow your blow off your drunken kind? You know, and he's like you know making those jokes about that, but then when you know when Gamora's like you know when it comes down to it, if Thanos gets me, you know, I want you to kill me, and then I mean you can just tell just in his facial, you know, just his face that he's just like I can't do that, you know, I'm like of course I'm not going to do that, and then you know then Gamora you know, it says the line, you know, swear, swear on your mother. And then mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I just love, I, I agree. I really love press performance. I think, I think I would agree. This is his best performance in the MCU up to this point. Um, and even in Endgame, of course he wasn't in game very long, but, um, but yeah, I really do. I really do love that scene between him and Gamora. Yeah. I know we started talking about Gamora. Let's just move to, to Pratt uh, real quick. Like I know a lot of people like there's a whole meme thing. It's like, Oh my gosh. You know, it's all Quill's fault. Everyone died, and right, and like, yes, he 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 
screwed it up. Like, you know, but also like that, that was his plan too. Let's not forget that. But like, yeah, sure. He screwed it up. But I think the fact that it, he, this broke him, the, you know, learning that Gamora died and that he failed to do the one thing she asked, you know, that guilt. And, you know, obviously the, the rage at this twisted father figure who killed his own daughter. I mean, it's, it says something about him and, and not just that he's an, an impetuous idiot, but like this literally broke him to his core. And I love that Starks immediately spots it as he's just struggling to take off the gloves. Like, hey, hey cool. Calm down. Calm down. We almost got this all like, cause he literally did that, you know, a couple of films ago. And, 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 and yeah. And, and I, and like you said, I'm, I don't, I've never understood that argument with, you know, people, with the people saying, Oh, Quill ruined, you know, Quill ruined it. They almost had the glove off. You know, Quill is the reason why Thanos, you know, did what he did you know, or whatever, but that's completely in Quill's character to go off on a limb and just like, have an emotional reaction and lash out. I mean, he did that in Guardians too. Yeah. Yeah. He did. I mean, whenever he found out his mother died, you know, he was like, what, you know, he said that line and he just like blasted, you know, ego. I mean, that's just like, that's in his character to kind of just be a loose cannon. I mean, you can see that through all his performances, Guardians one, Guardians two. And then now this, I mean, so, and yeah, that that's just in his character. I I just don't, I just never have never understood that argument that people make. It's just like the the lines that he's like, I had just like no you didn't no you didn't and he's like I I I'm finding I don't I find I like Pratt less you know when he's trying to be funny like the the whole mimicking Thor I think is just incredibly stupid people think oh, he's funny you. I hate it oh, uh, really oh, no, I love that stuff I, I hate it so that. much I hate it. <laughs> uh, like a joke isn't funny when you called it out like having man say oh you just did it again like it's not funny anymore. Okay. I'll agree there, but in, in Infinity War, it's funny. Yeah, no, uh, Infinity War, yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> but like, okay, fine, whatever. whatever. But I, no, I, I still think that every not. dramatic moment from best. him is incredible from this movie. Not today, sir. He's trying to copy me. I just, I don't know. I just think it's freaking uh, hilarious. I'm over here rolling my ass so hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. Something that I... I'm going to be saying this throughout. Another thing that really surprised me about this movie um, was how much uh, narrative weight was placed on her as a character. Like, obviously, the the series has been using her kind of as this point of contact for Thanos, this, this way to ground him to the narrative in some way. He's not this entirely external thing. You know, Guardians, finds, Guardians of the Galaxy 1... Uh, finds a way to anchor him into characters we already know, so that when he does arrive, we have that that en- emotional, you know, touching point. Um, but even with that being said, I wasn't expecting um, this level of of emotional and narrative involvement. Like she had, and, and especially for them to pull her from the Guardians for so much of the time. Like there are several scenes of just her and Thanos. Um, she's like the doorway to Thanos, Thanos's soul, and you know it's it's her that you know in a horrible, twisted way opens up Thanos to us. Yeah, and and that's another thing that I really enjoy about Thanos is I feel like he's kind of he's being he's projecting what he wants other people to see him as. I feel like the only time we really see Thanos is in scenes with her. Like that's 
that's him right there where he's not like putting on this show, you know, trying to be this dignified character. Um, but, but yeah, just for, uh, Zoe Saldana's performance, she's, I definitely agree. This is her, her best performance of the series and she's always been super good, but like this movie gives her more to work with than either of the guardians films, I think. Um, and there's like any one, like there, there are like one of three scenes that you could choose and like have that be the only like super emotionally heavy scene with her and be like, yeah, that, that scene is the one where I knew that, that this was like the best in this, like the best film for her performance. But we get like, we get the death scene, um, just their long conversation in the throne room, uh, having Pete or like begging Peter to shoot her. Like she is, she is in like emotional turmoil for the majority of her screen time. And she's mm-hmm. consistently compelling. Uh, and I just, I thought that was really impressive, both in terms of like the actress, as well as just the, the story. And I guess it's a testament to how much people, you know, at this point really enjoyed the character that you could have her be almost like the emotional heart for a lot of this film. And, and it completely works. Yeah, yeah, and I guess one just one small thing to add because because like you said, you know, he, she mentions Thanos. Thanos has been mentioned in Guardians, you know, the Guardians movies <clears throat> and all that. And every time you know they talk about Thanos, there's always like you know, she always kind of her mood changes, her, you know, her tone changes every time Thanos is mentioned. And th- I mean, it's the movie where he's here, and I think that's where all the, her emotional performance comes in it's at its best is because he's here you know he it's it's not we're just talking about him anymore we're not like oh he's 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 coming or you know whatever the case may be but he's here he's a real threat and but yeah i just wanted to add that and speaking of him being here a criticism i've heard like hey, why did thanos wait all this time why did he send other people to get the infinity stones um my theory of that is that simply he was waiting till he knew where everyone, everything was. Well, he was like, he was going after a piecemeal for a while, but you know, waiting, the, holding back the final blitz until he knew where every single stone was. And then just goes, he just sweeps through and gathers them all in a single day. And I think, you know, he was right to do that because as soon as anyone realized what was going, what was happening, everybody, you know, mustered, including you know, groups that were almost powerful enough to stop him. So if he had, you know, tried to go after the stones in full force before he knew where they all were, he probably would have been stopped. Yeah, and I mean, I don't... Like, that's kind of what the Infinity Saga has has been. Like, is is this slow gathering of, of them all anyways? Um, it makes no sense to to complain that he, he doesn't... He didn't try to go and get them all at the same time. And, uh, and like, I, I think they're even, you know, as as shoehorned as, as some of the infinity stone stuff is in age of Ultron, that still kind of explains some of this is the idea that he's, he's been using everybody as pawns. Like he let Thor and Jane draw the ether out for him. You know, I, would he know where it is? I, I don't think so. Uh, he sent Gamora out to find the location. And he, he only invaded Xandar after he saw the recording in Nebula's head saying that, Gamora knew where it was. Exactly. And so, like, he's he's kind of playing chess. He's he's putting all the pieces in place, and he is proactive, you know? Like, and, and you know, he's he was invading... I don't I don't know if we... Are we given, like, the uh, super... Oh, wait, no, he's, he's invading Earth to get the Tesseract and the, the Time Stone. Like, 
to me, one of, that's one of the things that I, I guess all that's to say, that's something that I really appreciate about this is that this is really uh, capitalizing on what feels very intentional. Like I remember when they said that, uh, you know, this is this is now being dubbed the Infinity Saga, and my initial thought was like, well, yeah, I mean, they're there throughout. I guess if you got to call it one singular thing. That makes sense. But then after this, and then especially after Endgame, and, and we get the time travel stuff, watching it in order, knowing where it's going, you really do see the long game they were playing more clearly than ever. Um, I mean, right from Avengers 1, but introducing these, uh, you see that this is this is a long plan that I think where, where a few things changed <laughs> this plan of his well i say where a few things change i don't know why i said that it did work so <laughs> i don't know what what we're complaining about <laughs> exactly so i guess to talk about uh the movie itself and not, not just the characters within it but just the way it moves uh i think it'd be helpful to to frame the discussion around these these kind of pockets or these these individual narratives that we've been talking about and that kind of really starts um in New York with, you know, you have a uh, banner there who tells him about everything. And it's like all of the plots are kind of consolidated there at the beginning. And then we start to diverge and that, that happens with, with Tony and Peter and, and Dr. Strange. So uh, what, what are, what are y'all's opinions on, on the way that this, this side of the narrative plays out and the characters in it? It's good. Like everything else. <laughs> all right. <move> on. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> I for I, I guess for me I think the stuff on Titan is probably the strongest stuff, just like structural structurally. I mean the stuff with Wand and Vision. I mean we'll, we'll get to that later. I'm I don't think it's as strong as the stuff on Titan. Um, but I do love how you know it kind of progresses. You know you have you have you know Doctor Strange and then Banner just like drops in. And then you find Tony, and then Peter comes along. It, it kind of it flow. I for me, it flows really well. It feels very organic. That you know, that Doctor Strange, that that you know, Banner would tell Strange, "Hey, let's go to Tony and talk with him and tell him about this because you know it's Tony." And then and then you know, Peter, it, Peter, of course, would help because he's like, "Oh no, alien invasion! I need to go help you know my friends or whatever." So I think it's it's all very organic in the way that it plays out mm-hmm. and then bruce and then bruce being left behind immediately leads into you know, calls cap leads into that half of the story exactly and it, and it all feels very organic and natural because you know you know like tony he didn't he doesn't want to call cap because they're you know they were on you know with all the crap that happened with civil war you know he obviously doesn't really want to speak speak to cap at, at, you know at that time so it makes sense for for bruce to be like well screw that this is the end of the world you know we're talking about we're talking about the end of the universe we need to you know get on with that but um yeah and speaking of that structure like this movie is two hours and 40 minutes long and it feels like a quick two hours oh and, um, yeah it definitely so this movie is relentless so well yeah and, like every sequence just kind of leads into the next and <laughs> every sequence just about ends with us losing and like just the way this film toys with our hopes and dreams before finally crushing them at the end is like it hurts so bad, but I got it. I, I'm just amazed that it was able to do it. And, and speaking of that New York sequence, um, it's probably my least favorite action scene in the movie. I think there are a couple of really standout moments, like the, the the long take as they walk out of the sanctum and down the street, and like they're 
and the cars crashing and they're helping the civilians and the suspense in that is fantastic. Yeah, the, the use of the, the building dread. Yeah, this and then the, their camera work. Like, I think this this movie has some of my all time favorite handheld work. Um, like they've they've yes. always been really they've always used a lot of handheld throughout all their films, but this one, I feel like because they were shooting it with a single camera, like all, the previous film, th- uh, previous two films, they use like a multi camera setup. So like a, the the compositions all feel a lot more purposeful. You know, it's just it's just a much more elegant looking movie than the previous ones. Yeah, and then, you know, I think th- th- that's why when they when they go handheld, it, it means a lot more, and it's also like these really beautifully composed handheld shots. Uh, but back to the action sequence, I feel like this is probably my least favorite. It's I feel like they're at their best when it's just two people punching each other. They can make that look amazing forever. Uh, when things start flying around, they're they're good, and I think they can be great if they have a real strong sense of focus. I feel like this sequence didn't have a great sense of focus like the um just the way the way the camera's kind of flying through it, it's just not nearly as grounded and as uh, like energetic as a lot of the scenes it just it, it felt more like a blockbuster sequence that you see in any other movie like this would be this would be a really solid sequence in an ant-man movie i think but it here it just there wasn't yeah there was yeah, there wasn't any like super special camera work going on or for or how how the action was shot it just was very like Let's follow this. Let's follow that. You know, there wasn't was, a lot of. It was probably all second unit or something in this case, where, which doesn't necessarily have to hurt a film. You know, you know, directors are still directing second unit, but I can't. I can't imagine like the fact that they they shot these two films back to back and the the amount of footage they're having to deal with every single day. The fact that most of the movie looks this great is incredible. Yeah, so th- yeah this is definitely my least favorite, but it just has like this is the. Uh, the the back and forth between um, Tony and uh, and uh, what's his name? Strange is amazing. You know, protecting your reality, douchebag. <laughs> There's a lot of funny. Dude, you're embarrassing me in front of the wizards. Um, and uh, P- P- Peter's introduction, where he just he stops the hammer, then his head peeks out. Hey, yeah, hey, man. <laughs> it's like just classic Spider-Man. Um, yeah, so it's there's good stuff there. That's interesting because this is actually probably my favorite action sequence in the film. Um, Seriously, really? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's really not a sub, there's not a crazy amount of action. There's a, really a lot of just kind of following characters here and then here. It's, I feel like the action is mainly towards the latter half, and I'm I'm actually not the biggest fan of the action on Titan. Um, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's that's probably my least favorite. Uh, what I really liked here is just the way, like, the goals are laid out and the way characters are introduced and their powers are worked in. Like, the idea, or, you know, starting with, with Strange and Tony and having, like, this, seeing the way their powers are used against uh, Squidward, um, with the, the idea of using the portals and firing back at him, and then Strange gets taken out of the equation, and then it kind of, the, the fight is less defensive and now it's like play or it's, it goes from defending just the city into like defending strange and essentially playing keep away. Uh, and then you introduce Spider-Man. I love that shot. Just the way he flies in the camera and like peeks his head out from the, the hammer thing being thrown. Uh, and so now he's involved and then the bigger guy is there fighting. It's just the, the folding in of the different powers 
and the different goals, like what this person's trying to do versus what this person's trying to do. And I, re- I actually, I, I don't think the camera work was like insanely amazing or anything, but I did like the way it's kind of just floating around following stuff as it happens over here and happens over there. I think part of my complaints with uh, the fight on, on Titan, which we'll get there, which is like that kind of the, 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 the end of this particular like section that we're talking about is that that fight scene to me feels like it just becomes a series of like cgi noise of like big explosions and just non-stop energy blasts and like the the, the filmmaking is so much better there though uh, i i think the geography is like fairly poor in that scene like it's just we'll blow this up and how like we'll throw a bunch of like debris at the screen and we really don't have to keep up with where we're at because like as big of a fight it is it feels like i can see where the set is there and where all the cgi outside like on the ground fist fighting like they're in a weirdly contained like space but then when things go cgi then i'll like we're we're kind of off the ground and up in the air we're we're bouncing all over these rocks and peter's flying around just all of these explosions grabbing people and then when we land again we're kind of back in this weirdly siphoned off area of the ground i uh, i was just gonna say so you're saying that like the stuff on titan feels like a little set that the that they build and we're like oh you guys fight on here and that's it you guys just don't move from here yeah yeah is that, what, is that like, what you're saying okay yeah like when it's the actors you can see where the set is and whenever like the it's just non-stop how like pulling moons down and peter like swinging around grabbing people and uh it, it feels disconnected from well, from the I would have actors. a problem with that if it were as poorly shot as the New York sequence. <laughs> but I, I think the... Uh, ah, see, I, I just don't think, think it's poorly shot. I think that just the way the, the battle moves is very, like... It's just a really good use of location and, sh- like, following the action where it moves to where you're never like, oh, wait, why are we over here? Okay, now we're... Like, it's just... There's a, there's a lot of different individual moments throughout that that I just I think are super super cool looking in isolation but but kind of make sense based on where the fight's been leading and and where we are geographically and I do like a lot of the ideas behind the New York sequence like there's a constant great moments but I just feel like it, it's so smooth and CGI it doesn't have any of the uh, just the kineticism of their the, their camera work that's made their actions so great up until then. I think it it just feels like pretty much any any other CGI action sequence we've seen you know, a thousand times in other movies. Just the in the filmmaking. See, I don't I don't know. Like, I, I don't really know. I'm not. I guess I'm not sure. Like, what the the criticism itself is because one of the things that I like about it. Um, which is a result of them, and I was going to talk about their cinematography. Uh, yeah, their cinematography as well. I think it's it's so weird that these like it makes sense while at the same time being kind of baffling that these are the same directors as uh, Winter Soldier and Civil War, uh, just because of how like because they're it feels like they're shooting for way less coverage. They're not shooting from nearly as many angles. They've got to get the shots right. You know, they've got to get everybody in frame. They've got to get the action in frame because we don't have like eight other cameras around. Uh, but mm. because of that, like just watching Spider-Man, like where we've got this, these nice big full frames that he's swinging into and Dr. Strange is flying around. I remember the first viewing, I was like, I, I'm loving this as a comic book movie fan, but I can only imagine what this is like for people who have like been reading these comics and these characters for like decades, just to have these like full 
huge frames of like strange using powers and opening portals and spider-man swinging and iron man like all of these different things all packed together and like very clean ways that you can you can really follow along with i guess ultimately that's that's probably the reason why well actually maybe my favorite scene is probably the fist fight with hulk and thanos which i think is pretty amazing oh wow Um, yeah so yeah that's my favorite but in terms of like bigger battle i think one of the reasons why the new york one is my favorite is just it's easier to follow and it's easier to see what's going on and who's doing what i think power levels just like the the difference in what certain characters can do just it starts to make the latter battles not make quite as much sense where it's like you're letting this this guy who has like a grenade really affect him while at the same time like this this guy in the like he he put um drax and uh and mantis into like a ribbon and a bunch of chopped up blocks and he just pulled a a moon out of the sky but he's kind of getting punched and and acting like it's affecting him it's just it feels like they set thanos up to where he should just like even before filling out the gauntlet like we've already seen that he literally turns his hand and people fall apart and he's pulling moons out of the sky but whenever we actually get to the one-on-one choreography and like Spider-Man jumping and kicking, I'm like, none well, of this. Well, it, it really has makes to do with sense. him being able to concentrate. Like, what I love about that sequence is that when you look closely, everything there, the whole thing is designed to keep him distracted and to keep him from being able to focus and use the gauntlet until they can knock him out. Like, he's sending the cloak. You know, don't let him close his hand, and everything is designed around keeping his hand open and just punching him from every direction so he can't actually fight back until they can pull it off. Well, of maybe if he wasn't such a doofus and focusing his energy on like pulling a moon out of the sky and just like, you know, slicing up a couple of humans. It's just, just from a, from a, from a, uh, just a utilitarian perspective, it would be so freaking boring if it was all just power rays. Like <laughs> punching is just so much more fun to watch. Yeah. Than people. And I, and I think James, I think the reason for, like for me, why I don't, particularly like the new york is because we've we've seen heroes fight in a city hundreds of times before and i think the reason why titan for me is just more interesting is because it's new planet the lighting's different it's just they're kind of using their surroundings i don't know i just i'm not a huge fan of new york because we've seen heroes fight in new york i mean i know it's and it's different because you have spider-man iron man doctor strange you know and all that but it's just we've seen heroes fight in that kind of setting before and so therefore it's not super interesting to me to just see heroes fight in New York, in the city. It's just, that's kind of my biggest complaint. It's just, it just feels like we've seen that done a million times before, but that's kind of, that's kind of my take on just the New York scene in and in of itself. Sure. Yeah. I, and I think the movie kind of knows that because it presents it as this very nonchalant thing. Like him. So like, Hey, who are we fighting now? Like, Oh, this, okay. Well, it, it feels like another day in the a day in the life of a superhero. And so I, I think the film knows that. Uh, and I think that like it's really smart of it, uh, but just about the the point on power levels is like I, I I agree, Gabe is that like it's I don't want it to just be a bunch of people using all of these powers. I like the idea of them keeping him from using it. It's just they 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 allow him to use it enough to where it's like this this fight just stops making a whole bunch of sense. Where it's like the guy who who just got punched and effect like and was affected by it is also the guy who like caught everything strange through at him and like created this weird vortex and broke up the ground and and like is 
constantly stopping I, powers I don't where think they stand. He, and, his ability to use the glove has anything to do with him being also being vulnerable as a person. Like, uh, sure, two, two I, it's just different things. But even even before he's got those stones, we're still we're told that, like he is the most powerful being in the galaxy, and that's pre the amount of stones he has there. It just it it feels like the movie. And there's not really a lot of ways to work around this, but it just it feels like there's really not a not a lot of ways to shoot this fight scene based on like Quill's there and he's got guns and a jetpack and he's not like in a battle in which a moon is literally destroyed and pulled out of the. What does Quill actually do? He survives, which just shouldn't happen. Like that's what he does. The fact that he's like alive and breathing by the end of it. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I really don't agree, though. Um, but going to the part that I really want to talk about in this fight scene is that that final duel between uh, Tony and Thanos, which I think is probably in my top five MCU fights. And just I think what what the Russos always get is the pacing of their action sequences, and there's a, there's a clear goal. You know, we know what 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 everyone is after, and it's just and just the way they kind of cut between different moments and paces. And the, the the thing I talk about, this movie is so good at giving us hope in every single sequence. Where in this scene, they, they trap him and get this close to winning. And every time I watch that movie, I, you know, you're on the edge of your seat. And, you know, and then it all just goes to hell and everyone's just, it's just pure chaos. And slowly, you know, one by one, Thanos takes them all out till it's just him and Tony. And just at, at the desperation of that fight, I think... um. Robert Downey Jr. is incredible in that sequence. It just he's just throwing every single thing he has, you know, in his, you know that that his suit can do. He is doing it all in like this one minute stretch, and it's barely you know it's not, not even, hardly even leaving a dent as a you know, you know all that for a drop of blood. Just the the way like he, his rocket boot kick or just mm, kind of I love that you feel that connection rocket elbows. Um, you know, like kick you know, like fastening his foot to the floor with his hand like. He's just constantly just doing everything he can, and he keeps getting hit, and pieces are flying off the suit. It's just, you know, his suit is getting smaller and smaller to where, like, half his body is out of it, like, just half a helmet. Uh, just the shot where uh, Thanos literally pulls the helmet off his head, and it just gets it just gets more and more desperate, and Thanos just keeps coming, and I love the way the music cuts out until finally he just stabs him, and the whole thing just kind of stops, and they just kind of clench together, and, he's, and Thanos, like, pushes him back a few paces, and he just... It's it like it's we had that kind of like twenty minutes of chaos you know, brought brought all the way down to this one single fight and now it's over and oh my gosh Tony just lost what is gonna happen can confirm and, my heart stopped in that moment Tony got stabbed that was brutal I mm, yeah I did, I makes did me know, cringe just to think about it <laughs> like you know, T- Tony's had a long run in the MCU is he dead now yes <laughs> exactly exactly yeah I remember seeing that moment in the theater like when you get stabbed the audience just viscerally reacting i was like why why is everybody react like like these are superhero movies this happens all the time and then just like the the kind of movie that this was set in on me more so just like wait this movie opened with the death of loki and we just threw gamora off a cliff and so like Mm -hmm. i spent five seconds being like well i think that was a little dramatic and then I just started thinking about it more. I was like, oh, wait, they may be onto something. I, I guess I need to start preparing myself for the possibility that, that this is what's going on here. And 
RTJ's ability to just radiate pain and misery is something else. Mm. Just a look on his face after uh, Strange gives him the stone, he's like, why did you do that? Like, I just hate everything in the world and my life right now. I just want to die. I just love every scene. Is there a single sequence aside from maybe Thor on like, uh, ne- ne- is it Nevedalir or Nedevalir? It's Nedevalir, I think. Yeah, that. Aside from that, is there a single single sequence in this movie where the Avengers achieve their goal? I guess they do rescue. Okay, they, they do rescue Vision and Wanda. But aside from that, I think we're just losing the whole time. Yeah. yeah. And this is like it's a series of losses after we're told that Xandar is destroyed. We we start post loss, move into losses, and then end in loss. <clears throat> and speaking of Tony, I, I love what they do with him here. Um where we start out, you know, he's he's actually found peace with uh with Pepper. You know, there's no more surprises. And I love with you know we had a kid. We named after your eccentric eccentric uncle eccentric uncle Morgan, uh, which is you know just a great touch. See, that's what happens later. But you know, he's he's finally found his little bit of happiness, and then Thanos is here. Um, I love his reaction when uh, Bruce says, you know, he sent Loki, and he just whispers, "This is it." Like this is this is the thing that his you know he's feared since the Avengers as he says to uh Strange you know, Thanos has been in my head for six years and now he's back, and, like you think about it, like it's what it almost drove him mad in Iron Man three like it caused him to almost destroy the world in Age of Ultron like the thing that has been you know terrifying his character for all for you know since the Avengers is is now here, and we probably can't stop it. He just he he just looks so scared and miserable all throughout the film. <laughs> Like when he gets to to tighten with other characters, he's just he, he's so he's not really quippy anymore. He's just like sitting in a cor- the corner, just trying to think and just hating his life. It, it it's I think it's just it's a really good performance. One of the things that's just like funny to me about that pairing and the dynamic that's created on Titan is that like you almost have Tony as as the straight man. Like <laughs> before, he's he's the guy quipping, he's the guy bouncing off of everybody, and now. You know, it, it used to be his lines were what we, what we laughed at. And now, like, it's his reactions to everything going on around him. He's no longer the most outlandish or ridiculous person in the room. And so he's he's the older brother or the dad or whoever trying to keep things, like, moving and keep things serious. Because like, he's, he's the only person who's been there since the very beginning in terms of, like, what's going on with Thanos, at least in that group. And so he's he's aware of what's going on in a way that. What exactly do you do? Kick ass, take names, <laughs> yeah, that's and right. you look at his face. It's like he's he's just like shutting down. I'm like I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, and now that y'all mentioned that, I guess I never really thought about that. He is more like cut the crap in this movie. Like this is serious. Like <laughs> and then when you know like Mr. Lord, can you get your people together? And he's like Star Wars, you know Star Wars, Star Wars will do just fine. And so like he's just like very like, like we have a plan. Thanos is coming. Let's use what we have, you know, and then, of course, then you have the Guardians being the Guardians, but... Don't call us plucky. We don't know what it means. <laughs> Dude, don't call us plucky. We don't know what it means. Yeah, man, I, I love that entire exchange between them. And just speaking of that sense of desperation, another scene, you know, that scene where uh, he captures Gamora, and just the way he manhandles and uses them and taunts um, Peter, like, yeah, go ahead. She asked you to do it. And... He's he's just so evil. I like 
all the characters are just completely helpless in his hands. And he, you know, he, he keeps taunting Peter until he finally does it. And just the bubbles come out. And he's such a like, jerk. I, I, just, I, I hate this man. I, I want him, you know, I want him in pain. It's so, it's so, it, this movie just hurts to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, again, another great moment from Pratt. You know, I told you to go right. And like he, he he's like going into a quip, but he can't even finish the entire sentence before he gets really desperate again. It's it's a really interesting performance there. He'll start a line and then just like go right back into yo, you give her back. Um, like he's so intense. Blast that nutsack of a chin off your <laughs> <laughs> That line should not be that funny in that moment, but it makes me laugh every single time. One thing I one thing I just really wanted to mention, um, real quick about the whole titan thing i think one of my i don't know how y'all feel about it but the, doc, the, the doctor strange versus thanos i know it's just like a short like like maybe minute and a half minute scene but that is arguably my favorite fight scene just the use of how strange is using his his you know his magical abilities and how thanos is using the you know the reality stone and all that with you know the, with you know he turns like you know the diamond the whole diamond thing and then he turns it into butterflies and Thanos is like distracted all of a sudden. He's like, Oh, butterfly. I don't know. I, I really love the dynamic between them two. Thanos, Thanos punches his way out of the mirror dimension. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, and then you have like, you know, the, the butterflies and all that. Um, and using that, that Giacchino score. Mm-hmm. Or the, 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 the hundred Dr. Strange clones. Yes. Yes. I absolutely adored that. And, and the, and yeah, and adding Giacchino's pretty fantastic score from Doctor Strange, I, I really enjoyed that as well. But yeah, I just wanted to add that as well to that scene. Um, let's move on to another character with uh, Thor. Um, this is interesting. Like, they kind of they kind of carry over the character reboot from from uh, Ragnarok, where he's definitely a lot less serious, a lot more goofy, but also they force that character to be really serious. Like they really beat down on him and break you like I, I i you know it's no secret that i really hate what they do with this character in endgame but I, I love him here um we're just right in the opening they take everything away from him, which i think is kind of an issue i think with, with the way the, the continuity with, with thor i think is pretty shot the fact that basically everything that we fought for in everything that ragnarok was about is kind of just destroyed here like Oh, we saved Asgard. Yeah, he know they're all dead, and oh, you know he he doesn't need a hammer anymore. Nope, here's an axe. Like it's just kind of like they just that that movie kind of becomes irrelevant from this movie. Um, but that's that's kind of a different issue. Uh but I think as far as the performance, the way he's able to balance, you know, the humor and the sadness. There's that one monologue where he goes, you know, like you know, I'm 1500 years old. I t- you know killed twice as many enemies. Uh, you, know, I, you know, Thanos is just the, the, you know, the latest bastard in a long line, and you know, I've got to kill him. Fate wills it so, and like, he's like, tr- vacillating between you know, the uh, very, very kind of jokey and, but every, but he's like joking, and yet you see the tears are coming out of his eyes. Like, there's so much pain in there, and yet he's you know, trying to keep a brave face. It, it's so good. Yeah, that may be like my favorite individual scene with Thor. Uh, like almost maybe even across the series because the balance of like of, of humor of letting his personality be up front and center with all while also 
you know, not betraying the tone and, and the stakes of what's going on. Like you said, he's like, he's never fought me. Yes, he has. He's never fought me twice. Like, that's that's not like a... It doesn't break the the tone or that or the mood of that scene at all because it it feels kind of defensive and it's very yeah it's very desperate like he's cling he's trying to cling to hope and you know if we're joking about it it's there it can't be this serious and and just like the the last bit of him like when he finally wipes his tears i'm like man hemsworth is really fantastic when they let him be and what more could i lose and, and like you i like I wasn't, I was unsure of, of how I felt about Thor going forward after Ragnarok. Cause I knew that I, I really enjoyed that movie in the moment, but I was just like, I, who is Thor going, you know, from now on, what is this character going to be? How do you, how do you just bring this, this goofy, uh, boyish character back into like the rest of the Avengers and, I thought they they handled exactly. I thought they handled it like perfectly here because it feels in line with almost both iterations before it it felt like really pulling everything about Thor into a singular character where he is, there is a sense of nobility around him. um, But he's still in a lot of ways, that same guy from Ragnarok. It's not even just that one scene, you know, it's like a, uh, it'll kill you only if I die. That's what killing you <laughs> means. It, it, in a weird way, they strike that right balance of like embracing all of the different aspects of Thor that I have enjoyed about the character, but are kind of these disparate elements, kind of pulling them together. Um, I guess the the one issue that I do have, or maybe like the 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 two issues that I have with the the Thor side of of this is. Um, one, I think all of the other, uh, narratives running along are motivated entirely by plot. Um, any, any obstacles are, are birthed entirely through what's going on. They're very organic. They make sense. Like we couldn't do this without facing this or this. We have to find a way to solve this. Um, Whereas I think everything on Neville the Year, or however you want to pronounce that, it's it's very fabricated. It's let's let's extend this sequence out. Like we get there, and you know the the it, it, the fire is out. You know the star is dead. We've got to reignite it. I, I think it would be a fantastic sequence in a less urgent Thor movie. Yeah, like everything there is good, but because of like what's going on in the other ones, like. Every, everything on Wakanda makes sense because, and I, I really like the contrast of like, we're not going to kill, we're not going to sacrifice vision, you know, like that, that being contrasted with Thanos, who's like, oh, I'm going to sacrifice Gamora and Gamora's we death being unwi- like unwilling and with vision's death being self-sacrificial. Like you have those two things being bounced off each other. Like the movie is asking you to compare them. And it's like, this is this is what separates the heroes from the villains you know this is looking at the scene and how this sacrifice plays out and how the sacrifice plays out and why we're fighting for vision like all of those obstacles make sense and the fight coming to Wakanda and them you know like you treating that hill like the one to die and all of that makes sense 
and and I agree. Like this sequence isn't just inherently awful. I I do I enjoy the sequence in the moment. I think it's a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of funny stuff. Um, the visuals are super cool, but it just feels like well, for the sake of keeping Thor away from Wakanda for a little bit longer, let's kill the star. Let's have them reignite it. Let's almost kill him. Let's like it's just a series of almost video game esque like it's like a video game side quest. He's trying you're trying to find the the all powerful weapon that will kill the villain yeah. kill the boss. And like with him holding the the thing open, I just feel like you know, like tap X as fast as you can to keep the door open. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think what this this it, this whole seek the whole subplot is essentially a red herring to give us hope. Like he Thor is having like his own mini hero's journey throughout this film. I think if you if you had to pick a protagonist from the Avengers from the good guys, I think it'd be either Tony or Thor, and I think both kind of go through their own little odysseys in this movie. And like it, it works in the the first viewing. You're totally here. Yes, he's got to get a weapon to kill Thanos. I think it it, it hurts it in in late in you know multiple viewings when you know none of it actually matters, and the film is so otherwise relentless with absolutely no fat in every scene you know, completely vital, a video game sub, you know, side quest, just, it's, it's just kind of apples and oranges to the rest of the movie. It's, it's, it's not the same thing. It's like, it's, it's from a different, from something else. Yeah. And I like the idea of, of this plot existing to give us false hope. It's just, I think, I think that that should still be able to work on repeat viewings where it's like, yeah, this makes sense. Or it's like, with these other plots, it's pretty much what I've already said. Like the the obstacles have to be in there. Like for those obstacles to not be there, based on the the events that have already transpired, it it wouldn't make sense for them to not happen. Whereas like, there's no plot reason really. Like they create a, an unnecessary issue with the furnace being out and with just like with the the way a lot of that scene plays out. But fortunately, it's yeah. all still really well shot and acted. And like I said, the visuals are, are cool. Um, the other issue I have is kind of one that you already touched on early with with it kind of retroactively undermining his arc in Ragnarok. Um, part of what I love and what like I know we both love about franchises is is that kind of franchise storytelling of and it's done incredibly well with Tony of like, where was he in the last film? How do we build on that? And so like... To an extent, yes, you are you are here to tell your story in the moment. Like we've hired you to tell this particular story, but you have to understand the parameters you're operating in. You have to know where is this character, this character that has been give, given to me to tell their story now. Where is he? And at that point, he was t- like one of the big lines in the previous films. You know, who are you? Are you the god of hammers? No, like his whole journey was or not his whole journey, but so much of his journey was discovering where, where where strength really lies, you know, and not even just physical strength, but um, that was definitely this kind of physical manifestation of part of what that movie was, you know, and, and that's, it's visualized in this super awesome ways of like just the electricity just generating from him himself. Like he's, he is create, his blows are filled with lightning and he doesn't have his hammer with him. You know, so he's freed himself from the crutch of the hammer, 
being told like mm-hmm. you you don't need a weapon to reach your full potential you are the god of thunder not the god of hammers your strength lies within yourself and to go from that to psych yeah to go from that to like okay i was lying you need an axe like it, it does feel like we're we're kind of rewriting part of his journey which is crazy because i think the russos are kind of god level in how good they have been with you maintaining character continuity be it you know tony black widow captain uh, captain america like it's been so good until you get to thor then like i don't care what happened before we're just doing our own thing and it's just it's weird i have actually quite a few thoughts on thor and i actually have a point to maybe counteract the whole um argument of why thor wants the hammer um so i i don't want to go too often i don't want to like talk about thor for too long but personally thor in this movie <clears throat> i think is the perfect at least in my opinion is the perfect combination of brainas thor which is my favorite version of thor and um Good man. yes yes i i was a th- i was a ragnarok lover from years and then i rewatched thor a few times and i was like heck no no <laughs> i like brainas version much better but um I really do think that the Russos <clears throat> really hit hit the mark on this one because no, uh, yeah, my, my, my issue well, is uh, not with uh, the characterization, but more just kind of the how they seem to have such different uh, priorities from the last film, kind of thing. Not so much with the actual performance or, or character, at least in this film. And then. Yeah, so so to kind of like reply to what what y'all are talking about with the whole hand with you know him needing the hammer, I for me how I see it, I really think that harkens back to his whole thing, his whole arc in the first Thor of how he's you know this this boy you know he craves war he's he craves weaponry he craves battle and I think that him you know go his search for the hammer or his search for the axe in Infinity War kind of goes kind of goes back to his arc in thor one is like i i've lost my brother i've lost my best friend i've lost my mother i've lost my father i've lost everybody and i think that kind of how i see his character in infinity wars he's kind of forgotten about the whole the hammer was never your source of power i think that it goes back to his childlike little his childlike his you know childlike mindset of you know weapons be you know weapons be bad guys does that make sense? Like weapons be bad guys. Mm-hmm. So therefore I need this weapon. And so he's so distracted with the fact that I just lost everybody and I just, I have to have this weapon. And I think that really, really goes, and that's why I appreciate his character so much. That's what's that. And that's at least one aspect I really appreciate of his character is because they're acknowledging the fact that, you know, yeah, he used to be this, this, this boy. And then sure he's had some growth, but fundamentally he still is that boy that we met and Thor, I, I I don't I don't hate that idea. I I don't know that that's what the film is saying though, because like the like he gets the weapon and it, it it is the thing that puts the most damage of anyone into Thanos. And as everyone's been saying for the last two year two years, you know, if he had aimed for the head, they would have won. Like like as if it, it's he only lost because of arrogance. But if he had actually used the weapon properly, he would have won. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I I don't know how you, I, I I like that idea, but I'm not sure how that lines up with the idea that he doesn't actually need a weapon. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking as well because I I didn't actually think about that angle, and I think that there is a way to write this to where that works. That's um, true. Yeah, but but yeah, I I think the film is putting emphasis like 
it's not presenting that arc as like, oh, Thor, you arrogant. Just like, just go to Earth, put away your weapons of war. The the film is cheering for Thor. It's like, no, go here, get this. And when he comes back, the theme blares and like, it's this celebratory moment and it does everything it's been promised to do. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think that that definitely could could have been an avenue. And I think that the movie probably does put enough pieces in place for them to have gone that way. It's just, I, I think the film celebrates, to, like it, it motivates that and celebrates the the success. Like, you know, Ro- or, um, Groot being the handle, his sacrifice for Thor, like it's all like, the movie seems to think this should happen. You know, this isn't a bad thing. I mean, they even give us like the epic Avengers theme as you know, he grabs the hammer and all that. It's... Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, like, of course, and that's just how kind of I was reading into it. And like with, I mean, and, the, and for me, like more, you know, recently rewatching Thor is I kind of, you know, rewatching Thor and the Infinity War about a week apart. I kind of put the pieces together and was like, oh, well, maybe this is maybe this is the reason why he wants the hammer so bad is because <laughs> it goes it harkens back to his arc in the first movie. Um, and you know, headcanon is a thing. <laughs> like, there's there are <laughs> definitely certain flaws in movies that I cover up by like making excuses for it in my head. And I'm like, you know what? I enjoy it more now because of this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. For, no, for sure. Yeah, no, of course. Um, but yeah, the, the, that part of Thor and just like you know, like y'all said before, I don't want to like keep repeating what y'all said, but just the per. I I think there is that perfect balance of Ragnarok humor with the charismatic you know, person from the first movie, you know, the, the character from the first movie with his whole, and, and by the, and I agree with y'all that conversation with him and rocket in the, uh, in the escape pod or in, in, in the ship or whatever is by far my favorite bit of like dramatic moments, you know, my, and like, honestly, and my favorite line of the whole movie is, you know, you know, well, what if you're wrong? Well, if I'm wrong, what more can I lose? And you can see, so good. The, that, that is my favorite line of the whole movie because he's broken like he has nothing left i mean like you know whenever rocket's like where's your family he's like um sis my sister and dad are dead mom killed by dark elf best, best friend, friend? Stabbed, stabbed in the heart i mean he's like and like i and like the way he the way he, you know rocket kind of goes back and forth it's like what about this what about that you know kind of knuckle but at the same time you're like this dude has lost everything he has nothing left you know he has nothing else to lose so i mean he'll do whatever he can to kill thanos so <laughs> Anyway, that that's kind of my overall thoughts on Thor. I he's my favorite character of the movie. I think that it, they did a pretty perfect balance of humor and dramatic elements. Yeah, when when Thor became like a fairly popular favorite at the end of this movie, I was like, I, I get it. Like, I if you would have <laughs> told me after Age of Ultron, or I mean, and people were even saying it after Ragnarok, and like I was thinking, you know, I enjoy. I enjoy Ragnarok quite a bit, but favorite, come on. But I think, especially on rewatches, when he shows up to Wakanda and you're like, yeah, this is my favorite guy. I'd be like, yeah, that, that checks out. Well, yeah, yeah. You, oh, yeah. That moment alone. I mean, <laughs> as painful as Dark World and his arc in Age of Ultron were, I think that just that moment in Wakanda was worth was worth. I mean, that that's just an epic moment just cinematically and... and then endgame happens uh, <laughs> um, but speaking of that scene with uh, with thor um again just the growth of characters i love where rocket is i mean it's just time to be the captain now and he's he's got to be the grown-up and 
you know, he's terrible at it, but he, he's trying and he's putting forth an effort and not like compare this to the scene where him and um, Yandu are locked up and he's just, you know, just tearing him apart and using everything he says to hurt him. But here, he, you know, dead brother. Yeah, that that can be annoying. <laughs> he's, he's trying to commiserate. Um, yeah, yeah, and I love Rocket in that moment. It kind of gives Rocket, I mean, <clears throat> as much as you can give a little CGI animal dramatic moments and, you know, whatever. But yeah, that's a good, that's a good, like, quote unquote dramatic moment for Rocket being, being, being the big man and being like, so let's talk about it. Like, what are you all about? Like, you know, do you have a family? Like, you know, and just kind of learning about who Thor is. Um, I can lose a lot. Like, me personally, I can lose a lot. <laughs> and that's another example of the Russos just being really good at gauging where characters are, you know, coming off of, like you said, Guardians Volume 2, where he is just such an a-hole and he's like constantly berating everybody and he's intentionally antagonistic. And with, you know, that Guardians Volume 2 did a lot to compare him with Yondu and Yondu's final act was like embracing his role as as a father to Quill and so if that's the character that we've been comparing with Rocket we can't help but kind of like especially considering Rocket has Groot to kind of be this father to that's all that kind of status is kind of imparted onto Rocket and so now he's got to try to be this fatherly character and it's it's just really good long game story storytelling with characters and there's that one really interesting line from quill where he says you know for the record i know that you're only going with him because that's where thanos is not it's if like this was intentional that the the fact that you know he kind of ran away from his family in this film and the next movie it's all about i'm trying to get back to my family like like thinking about that scene where in, in um in asgard he just like slaps thor's like you know is it too much to ask that you just focus so i get my family back it's kind of a cool connection there. Yeah. And that, yeah. And then Rocket's line, you know, I could lose a lot. B that hits so much harder when the snap happens and, you know, he sees Gert he die right in front of him. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Ah, uh, yeah. Anyway, we're not there yet. No, we're not there yet. Oh. I kind of want to talk about, um, and one of the narratives that I, I enjoy, but is for me, not on the same tier as like the the Thanos and uh, and Iron Man and everything. So it, it makes sense after Endgame knowing that they do do a lot with the character, but I feel like sometimes with Captain America uh, and and these characters. Well, actually, you know what? I'm rethinking all of that now. Because if you're going to criticize me, you're wrong. So you better rethink it real quick. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not prepared to make those statements, so never mind. <laughs> well, well, since we're on the subject of Captain America, I, he is he is he is shockingly absent from the film. You know, for considering that the fact that he's been one of the, what, like Age of Ultron and the First Avengers, he's he's you know one of the core members and pretty much you know the lead. Well, his, his name's in the title, the lead in Civil War. <clears throat> it was kind of shocking how little they gave. I think they were they knew that he was going to get a lot of awesomeness in the next movie. But that, that said, I think every single second he's on screen is pure gold. Um, just his introduction with the train going by, he steps in the shadows, and the first time we hear the full Avengers theme coming in, and then just him, uh, Hawkeye, and, uh, not Hawkeye, uh, him, um, what's Falcon and Black Widow just completely kicking butt on that train station. Um, it's, it was such an entrance. And like every line he gives is so quotable. I'm not asking forgiveness. And I'm way past asking permission. 
you know, we don't trade lives. Like everything he does is amazing. But yeah, there's not a lot there, but he's he's Captain freaking America. I mean, again, as much as I love Cap and as much as, you know, I'm I'm huge a huge supporter of especially the first Avenger. I know a lot of people don't really support that movie, but I love that movie. I I think he is by is definitely one of my least favorite characters in the movie because he's just he's there. You know, I mean, he looks cool. He has a beard, which is awesome. And then he's, you know, has a, he has a good physical presence and he fights some guys at the end. And he has that incredibly powerful moment when he Thanos, when he wards off Thanos and at the end of the movie. But I mean, yeah, he's just he doesn't really do much for me here. He's just kind of there. <laughs> and I, I, Yeah, I agree. But I don't, I don't know. That's a flaw. I think you know, he serves. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. And he's yeah. No, I, he's kind of the yeah, stalwart I, I, presence where. You know, rallying around. Yeah, exactly. No, I don't think it's a flaw in the film. It's a flaw in the movie. I just think that it's he just didn't do. I, I mean, and and I'm sure probably pretty much everyone else feels the same way. He captures didn't do much for anybody just because he just wasn't written that way into this into that particular movie. One thing that I'm I'm not 100 percent sold on. Like it works enough for the movie to work, and by the end of it, I'm a lot more like into it and accepting of what's going on but did like you we definitely have like the beginnings of something between wanda and uh and vision in civil war but i I feel like it's a little bit rushed maybe here i mean i've long since accepted that things happen in between movies like it's kind of like where you have like with the season finale of a sh- of a show, and often like you'll go into the next season, and there's a time jump, and all the characters are in a slightly different place. Like that, that doesn't bother me at all. Like there's been time we know that they were already super uh, into each other before, so yeah, they love each other. It makes like there's definitely uses of that, but I feel like a lot of that, like when it's done in shows between seasons or even between movies, the movie ends in a specific way where we're like, you know, like what what effect does this have on them? And like the, the change in the next film is just this direct result of the, the events we last saw. And so like, it's like the five years later in, in Endgame. Exactly. Like that's incredible. Um, but here it, it, it wasn't like, uh, like that makes, of course, of course they would fall in love. Of course they would be sleeping together. Of course that makes perfect sense. I mean, I thought that with, with the way they were, they were, uh, you know, getting along in uh in, in uh civil war like yeah so it like it's not that it's it doesn't make sense it's just i haven't been a part of it long enough for that last mm-hmm. emotional moment to work as like it works i don't at all want to make it sound like i this you know this emotional moment at the end falls flat because it, it they didn't set it up it works i just think it could have worked more if if we, I felt like we built there more because we kind of start off with them just really solid, and I don't feel like we got to be a part of that relationship enough to where like at the end it's like all I feel is you. It's like well, I mean, I'm, I believe it. Y'all's performances are amazing, and we've been told and it's kind of like a, a show don't tell I guess situation for me where I would have rather have just been able to be a part of that so that that moment can hit me harder, like hit me the way it needs to. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of like kind of flirtation in Civil War, but I'm kind of with you, James, on that on that aspect because I'm not really. Comp- I, I mean, 
again, I I can't argue with the fact that sure, yeah, they make a great they make a great, a great pair. I mean, heck, they're getting a show on Disney Plus, so their you chemistry know, is they, really they, solid. Yeah, together. yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, they have great chemistry, but it's like. I mean, for me, for me personally, I think with the whole scene, whenever, you know, all I feel is you and then she does that. I think Sylvester's score is what elevates that moment mm, the most. And for me, the, the score for that moment is what elevates it more so than the, than their connection. Because, like you said, it, it's not it's built up, but it's not built up enough to where you're like, oh, I'm sobbing my eyes out because Wanda has happened to kill Vision. It's just like, yeah, that's that. Yeah. And I, I think part of it is. You know, even if you had to build, like, really build to that in one movie, it it could be done. But I I think something that may just not work quite as well as I wish it would have is is the decision to start with them being as as strong and established as they are. Like that opening scene with them together, I feel like that scene is being played as it like with the intention like oh, every people are gonna be like invested in this as if this were a scene towards the end of a movie where this relationship kind of started but to to start with the way it's filmed and and him asking her not to go and all of this it's like wait wait like you you can't really make this parting this idea of him having to leave and different things happening and like what what his injury means to her like you you can't not that you can't but it doesn't work as well if you start there like you start with what they what they mean to each other. Yeah, and one thing I think one thing that again that kind of goes with that is that the scene in Civil War whenever Hawkeye, you know, helps Scarlet Witch escape, she's literally willing to, you know, throw him throw him into the earth, like literally, like you know, like use her powers, and that's why I'm like, even in that scene, they're like continuing this deep personal conversation and they like they, they start that started earlier like like you that's usually you know, if, they, if you do this they'll never stop fearing like they're both like even in that moment like touching each other's souls i i i, I get what you're saying but for me like the moment i see them together i think uh paul bettany and uh elizabeth olsen are so just fantastic actors that I'm there for it. I think this kind of adorable together. Like when they're outside, like you know, and you'll be doing this for you know for a couple of years, and I I I think it you know it might it might it works you know, it works it works like they're just adorable together. Yeah, I, I think. that's the, uh, their chemistry is really great, and I'm definitely going to be there for their show. I just they're not like Tony and Pepper or Peggy and Steve or these other characters, be- and it's because. And we've talked about this during those films. It's like there's just such a, a patience and beautiful build with certain relationships here. For for the leap for the film to kind of make the leap between like flirtation into like this is now the motivation for this character and their emotional climax is this moment right here. Um it it's not and maybe it is because it's within the same series as those. You know, maybe if those relationships had never happened, I'd be like, Oh man, this is everything. But you know, Endgame kind of gives us another, just this, another scene to compare and contrast with it, which is, you know, this last moment for, with Tony and Pepper. And it's like, oh, this, this hits because of just how wonderfully built to it's been. Like what that means for her to tell him to rest. Now it's like, oh, this is breaking my heart. And for him, and, and because it's also borrowing from, you know what's defined his character before especially in iron man 3 just this inability to rest or even age of ultron like he's constantly working and for that last moment whereas you know the idea of like all i feel is you and this deep connection 
with them, that that line doesn't mean a whole lot to me personally because I it hasn't just been a bunch of heartless bastards. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like well, like like you said, James, it's like with 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 Tony and Pepper, it just makes sense because you've had this build with Iron Man one, Iron Man two, Iron Man three, even Avengers a little bit. You know, you've had these little bits and pieces. I mean, even in Homecoming, you know, you've had these little bits and pieces that are just very beautifully woven together. And then when you get to Endgame. You know when you you know with Pepper's line with her, but but to be fair, Vision and and uh, Wanda have always been side character uh, characters, and I think yeah they function. And, and I think that's their function is, is a, a side romance. That's yeah, yeah. But I I think that's that's kind of one of the the costs of of creating the the climax around the film of kind of like framing it around side characters. Is if the if this big moment that you're building to in this film, if if the people you've chosen to use that with are side characters, you have to understand that, well, we cannot elicit the same response as we would if we were choosing to frame this around like the heavy hitters. So it's like if if you're going to do this, it's and they still made it work. Like I said, I love that scene. It's just it's they. It's just the natural outcome of, of what happens if you choose to use these characters instead of others who have had such a, a longer history in the series. I think the line itself and just their relationship, I think it would have worked better for me if we had one more film between Civil War and this toward like have but before the introduction of what the stone means for uh, vision, if we had uh, another scene of, of or another film where, He's almost having an identity crisis, you know, like what defines him? Who is he? What makes up his personality? Is is he just as an amalgamation? That, of, that was that was kind of his journey in Civil War in a way. I See, I don't feel as if he has really any sort of particular journey in Civil War. I think he's just kind of primarily used to present an argument, but as a character... All, all the conversations between him and Wanda are kind of dealing with identity and being and like who who are we really? I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, but... he, he he does have those line that line in Civil War where he's like, you know, I don't really know, you know, I don't really know what the, the what I, you know, I don't really know what this is, this thing in my head, you know, I don't really. So yeah, I, I yeah, I, I agree, Gabe. I, I think that he has those moments where he talks about identity, but I don't think there was enough. Yeah, because because to me the the line that they're giving to each other this idea that when they see each other all they're seeing is the other person that feels like it's coming on off the cusp of just a complete identity crisis of you know, that that they kind of played it's with just a, little a bit cute sweet little nothing they whisper to each other <laughs> you, might be, you might be really into it a bit too much maybe so maybe but it's also like it's it is kind of how that final event is that it, it revolves around that moment so I, I probably am reading into it too much, but I, I think to an extent the film is also saying like, hey, this this is this first part of this two part conclusion is building to this last stand and this sacrifice. And, you know, every it seems to be a lot of attention called to the scene itself. Well, because it, it, it is it is the final Infinity Stone, like just plot wise. It's it's that as well. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and like I agree with James, it is for the movie in and in and of itself and how it flows with the movie, it works great. I mean, it's a great scene. I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to sound like, you know, undermining the scene and like the filmmaking and, you know, how it was presented. It's presented fantastic. It's just, 
it just wasn't as emotional as it could have been, I guess. So moving into the, just the final battle in Wakanda, uh, if do you have problems with this, James? I'm just going to cut you off the call. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, I have one problem with it, but otherwise, I just love everything about this sequence. Like, we don't get a lot of like full pitch ground battles in movies; they're really hard to do. And I think this is a really, really good one. Um, just the build up to it with all, all the troops you know coming on the on the uh, on the you know, the hovercraft and like jumping, you know, lining up, and you have Mbaku there and doing their own chant. Mm. You know, yeah, uh, was like chant. Yeah, like everything is just building up, and you have you know the leaders walking and having their little powwow together, and you are in Wakanda now. Thanos would have nothing but dust and blood. Like just, mm. it's so Great line. epic. It, yeah, the then the, just the whole charge where you have uh, Captain America and uh, T'Challa, you know, way out ahead, and I think like I was just comparing this this fight. This this entire pitched battle to like the battle in Black Panther, and I think just the it's just night and day. I think the Russos are like the Russos just give so much more importance and and you just and just intensity to every single shot. It doesn't like it doesn't feel like as posed. I think that just the CGI just looks so much better. There's a sense of way like every punch just has there's like a crunch and a, a a physicality to it, and just the way they're just constantly being swarmed and. Like Captain America is being dragged around by like three of the the things mauling him, or or uh, the Hulkbuster just being swarmed. It's just there is an intensity, and I think it's a desperation and fear to it all. Like I just love the whole setup. Like the, there's a guy behind us, we're going to defend him. There's enemies in front of us, and they've got to kill everyone else to get through. It's like, like it's it's so simple. Just we're going to stand here and we're going to fight till we're all dead or until we win. And I, I just love battles like that. Um. Where the, just the stakes are so clear. Yeah, I think it was. I think that that was a good a good little taste of what Endgame was to bring with the whole charge and that. I think that, mm-hmm. that 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 I think that was a great. I mean, obviously, Endgame was four hundred gazillion times better for obvious reasons. But um, no, I I I adore the whole setup with the fight scene with them flying on those little on those Star Wars esque speeders, you know, and them all jumping out of them and them all lining up, and then you know you have. I forgot what it, what's his name, uh, Winston Duke's character. I forgot what his name was. Baku. But you know, yeah, Baku. Yeah, when he's doing the hoo ha, and then you know they're yeah. doing the whole chanting thing, you know. And I yeah, I I'm I love the whole setup. I love how it's all like brought together. How they go talk and you know, and then yeah, I I just love the whole scene. I think it's a very well choreographed scene. I think the the stakes are very well known. I think it gives the, every character a little a little moment to shine. You know, you have the Chala with his suit, you know, and you, you can like have that long kind of wide shot where you can see like, kind of, you can see, you know, T'Challa, like, you know, using his powers and you can see anyway. Yeah, I just like the whole, how the it's whole thing is filmed. Just shots like a uh, roadie up in the air, firing like every single gun and oh, that he yes, has yes, at the breach. It's just like, there's a chaos to it, but I think it's just the perfect kind of chaos. And I just, I just love how the Russos shoot action like this. I agree. Yeah, I, I don't know this, this may be an unpopular uh, opinion. I actually probably prefer this fight to the final fight in Endgame. Uh, I th- I think part of it is because the last fight in Endgame, and it's incredible. Like, <laughs> for, I want to get in front of that. It's awesome. Uh, but it's it's very it feels very celebratory throughout. Like, there's all of these moments where it's just like we 
and, and for good reason. Like this, it is the culmination where we want to see everybody fight together, and so like it, a lot of it is a series of like it's it's, it's kind of them making up for hurting us so bad in this movie yeah like like it's now we get to see that character use that power and that character use that power and these characters are interacting like it feels like whenever the portals open up which gives me goosebumps um and everybody comes out it feels like a foregone conclusion that like oh yeah they're they're gonna win because it's it's all of these characters with very clear faces versus like generic army of like same face cgi people um it, it just feels like that is a series of, of wins. And I think what I love so much about this last battle is is that it's like the battle form of what the movie has been. And that it's just like there's a sense of desperation in it. Like mm. they are fighting tooth and nail. And, and the stakes just feel astronomical in this fight. And what's really cool is that we're cutting between this to tighten to uh, never to leader, whatever the heck that word is, <laughs> where you're we're cutting between each of the, it all feels like one. It's like one of those in the famous cross cutting Star Wars uh, finales. Like everything, it's all just one big Or like sequence. the two towers with Os- Osgiliath and the Ents and yeah, Ends Deep and everything. It's just one giant sequence. And then we get the awesome moment of Thor coming in you know, and mm. we've won the battle. And it's awesome. And Thor's just killing everyone. And you have you know, Groot. I mean, you have Groot. And I am Groot. I am Steve Rogers. <laughs> you have all those awesome little moments. How much oh, I'm going to get that arm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, Winter Soldier picks up a Rocket and they spin around, you know, firing machine guns in both directions. Like they're, that they're is having pure fun. cinema. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really a fan of the the gigantic spinning wheel things that come out of the ground. Like, no, those uh, just seem kind of just like, I don't know. They, they just they're kind of like they they're kind of like the the big eel things from the first Avengers, but worse. I just don't. Whoa, those see things are awesome. No, 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 no. I'm saying no. I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm saying like they feel like those, but just a not very good version. Yeah, I feel like the battle kind of loses its sense of groundedness and scale that it had. Just kind of. Although the approximate midnight's death is pretty cool. <laughs> yes, yes, that was awesome. Some one of the things that I really love about the battle, though, it, and you kind of brought this. Up, just, there's these shots of uh, of Rhodey flying around. You know, the the battle, the climax feels very seamless, and it how it cuts between all of these other things. But just in and of itself, there's this sense of seamlessness of where, like you know, they you've got the rocket strapped on the big guy, and they just drag him and disintegrate him across the across the shield. But you look down, and there's this ground battle fighting over here, and it it doesn't feel like just a series of oh we we had this set here and we did this. Like the whole battle feels big and cohesive, and like if you were to turn the camera, like we may be looking at this thing right here, but if you were to turn the camera over here there's that thing going on right there. And if you like, you're seeing this directly in front of you, but if you look up, Hey, there's Falcon kind of flying around. It just feels epic and fully realized. And like one singular battle with different parts. And uh, I, I don't hate those, those machines. Um, I, I'm not a fan of, of how they end up. Like I love Proxima's death, but I'm kind of like uh, a Koye with like, uh, why wasn't she out here the whole time? I was just like <laughs> dispatching them as as quickly as they do. To me, like I I would have, and I feel like if if you're gonna give them the weight that you do, you can't just kind of discard them like that. But the way they come in, I I like what they do and and breaching the barrier, and it it certainly didn't 
achieved the same effect, but it did kind of give me like the the Mumikils coming in at the end of Return of the King, uh, that sense of mm-hmm. like, oh crap! Like the the second you think you've got it under control, here's this new element. And and I'm also a big fan of like of layering these battle sequences and finding ways to keep it from ever becoming stale. Like we we think we have it on this front, but now like now these things are here. We've gotta we've gotta open the barrier over here. To, they're not the greatest thing ever, but I do like what they do for the battle. Yeah, I like how we never lose focus. We're constantly cutting back to vision, and then uh, I love that you know, the the they, they what, what was it? Is that Colobsidian? Is that the yes. really weird wraithy guy? Yeah, like he like he they get him. To, they say he's dead, but he sneaks around. It's a really I think a really cool touch. And then like everyone's like, get back to vision, but I can't because I'm swamp, literally swamped in these crazy space dogs right now, and it, it does feel really desperate, you know. Uh, you know, Bruce goes with the Hulk banner, but you know he's ba- he's barely doing it. He gets separated. Like somebody get Vision, and there's it. We always know you know what's at stake, and you know, who, and it, again, we it feels desperate. And speaking of, uh, just to segue from the battle really quick, how do y'all feel about Banner in this movie? Um, uh, not the biggest fan. Yeah, like I just I think we talked about this in Ragnarok. I don't think he's a comedic actor, and no. they put a lot of comedy on him. And I don't think any of it works. Like he's a good reactor, but when he's having to be there by himself, oh screw you, you big green a hole! It's like eh, you're trying too hard, man. Well, and and like and going back to you know the whole the whole beginning in New York with him being like, you know, come on, buddy, come on, not now. And he's like, yeah. come on, Hulk, what are you doing? He's like slapping himself, and he's like, what? Are you? And you know, he's like, no, what do you mean, no? Like it's not. I don't find that amusing at all. Like, I just like it because obviously it's supposed to be comedic because Hulk is not coming out. But I mean, obviously, you know, Tony's reaction, dude, you're embarrassing me in front of the wizard. I mean, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love that line. You know, I love that line, but I mean, it's he, just, he's like the terrified, you know, messenger of doom. Thanos is coming. Like, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. Like, he's really good there, but. The comedy, yeah, it doesn't work. And even in Ragnarok, I mean, like the only, the only really, <laughs> only part that really makes me laugh, that makes the only joke is him jumping out of the ship and then him plopping on a rainbow bridge, and then <laughs> I that that part makes me die laughing. But yeah, other than that, I don't really think that Bruce is. I mean, that Mark Ruffalo is a great comedic actor. Yeah, mm. and because I, I, I think. And I, I don't know, I may be repeating myself from the Ragnarok episode, but it's like whenever he's dramatic, it's he is perfect. You know, you see, I mean, in, in these films or, you know, you go outside, like if you watch Spotlight, you're like, this guy can do anything so long as it's dramatic. Because here, I think the biggest problem is that when he starts to be funny, he's not Bruce Banner. It just becomes Mark Ruffalo. Like if you watch interviews, <laughs> the way he reacts with the cast, just... It's no longer even really acting. He's just like, like, oh, I think this is kind of funny. I'll say it like this. And it's just like, it really does just feel like the actor Mark Ruffalo having fun on set. Not a real character. Yeah. A really nice little moment. Uh, I think, I think uh, Natasha is another character that doesn't get too much to do in the film. But I just, I, something about me really loves the moment where they just see each other. It's like, hey, Bruce, Nat. And like, <laughs> the way he's like holding his just, arms. And I, I, something about I, – I love the way they both – like what happened happened. They made their choice, yet they're still looking at each other kind of wondering if maybe there had ever been a chance for them. It's, it's just a nice little human touch. Like this movie is 
full of those little touches where we're just kind of peeking into a, a arc that already an arc an ongoing arc even if we don't have time to really dive into it yeah yeah, yeah. and i think and i think that that scene with with uh natasha pays tribute like you guys like you said with the whole him being a good reactor and him being kind of a you know reacting and him you you know when he walks in he kind of like you know putting his hands together and him kind of like yeah you know, it, it it pays tribute to how well he can do. He can react dramatic, but so that yeah, I agree. That is a good moment. Um, yeah, I think something that he does super well is like play that sheepish sheepish kind of character, like that very unassuming, unimposing person who's just like, despite being like, like the guy, he's not like crazy stacked, but he is a bulkier guy, and like yeah. He, you you forget the fact that he's probably bigger than some of the people that you know that he's probably intimidated by and so like whenever he's just slouch yeah like that just his body language is so good and so i think that that kind of character works better when he does feel like that when he's trying to not be in the limelight and the problem with with humor at least the way they use humor here is like it's shoving him front and center like and here's his big line and it's like i I, I like his dynamic within the Avengers more whenever it's like all of these big personalities battling and he's just kind of like, what what do I do? Like, who am I here? And yeah. And I, I yeah, I like that moment a lot that they share with each other. Just like there and the audience is kind of Falcon where it's like, this is this is awkward. I, I kind of. I, yeah. Uh, know, there's something like I, there's a lot of complaints about the use of Hulk. I think in the last three movies, some of them I agree with some of them not like. People, they want the big, you know, the big bad Hulk coming out and punching people. And sure, that's always fun. But I feel like it, Hulk is a particularly difficult character. Like, like action-wise, I think you pretty much see everything you can from him after the, after, between Incredible Hulk and the Avengers. Like, after that, it's just, it's pretty much the same in every Hulk action sequence. And they're all awesome. Um, I don't know. Like, we had never really I, I, seen I, I, a fist fight as awesome between he and Thanos. Like, True, that but that's more, that's more on Thanos. Um, uh, but like, like also as a character, like once you deal with that, like that self-loathing Jekyll and Hyde, you know, he hates himself that, that I think, um, that I think Whedon did so beautifully in the Avengers and Age of Ultron. Like, what do you do with him? And I feel like we've kind of seen, you know, uh, Taika Waititi or the Russo's, they're really trying to find, you know, dramatic or interesting things to do with the character that aren't just the same thing over and over again. And, you know, whether or not it works, I think it it is definitely a bold choice to not just give the audience you know, the crowd pleasing Hulk moments that they wanted, but rather at least try to give something different. I think that the Russos and I think the best they handled Hulk the best. The best way they handled Hulk, in my opinion, opinion, other than of course the first Avengers is an Endgame. Because I love Professor. I think Professor Hulk is just amazing. That's that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, like I. I really love Professor Hulk, and I think that's a super. I do love Professor Hulk too. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, I was, I was, super... I was, these are my own complaints, but more just kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of things well, I've heard so around. So the thing is, like, it's. I don't even dislike the choice to sit Hulk out. Like, I, I think what Infinity War and Endgame was is it's a two part arc, and I really like the second half of the arc, and I like the idea of the first half of the arc, like the idea of of him not being able to be what the team is wanting him to be and 
and like there's there's really there's a lot of to me like dramatic frustration that could have been explored there where before the team needs him to be the hulk and he's like i don't want to it could so easily happen but i have to fight this they don't understand what this means to me the fact that this is something that i've been trying to control um and then now finding the frustration of like i i don't have that that the the averse or you know like the the lack of desire to be the hulk i guess um or that aversion I, to to let the Hulk out, and I and I can't now. You know, before it was something that could happen too easily, and I didn't want it to. And now it's something that I want to happen, and I have better control of, and I can't make it happen. And where now he's, you know, like, what am I to this team? What do I contribute? Like the one thing that I fought against so long. Now that I've embraced, it's too late and I can't access it anymore. And I just, I feel like there's some way you can explore that dramatically. However, they treat it kind of like how they do Thor and Endgame. Not nearly as much. <laughs> I, I don't hate this the way I do Thor and Endgame. But it, it just feels like there's so much dramatic p- potential here. But every scene is treated as a joke. Like the the ending to every scene with him is a punchline. Like every, he finishes every line, every almost every bit of dialogue with an attempt to get a laugh out of the audience. It's like, no, just be confident enough in this character and in this drama to just let it be drama. And so I, I do like the idea be- behind not allowing that transformation. I just wish they they made it more dramatic as opposed to like three different sequences of, of him like yelling at the Hulk. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there are like a there are a thousand different little moments that I, I I'd love to highlight, but I think it's time to move into just discussing the ending of this movie. Um, and I think you know the final twenty minutes of this movie is just absolutely brilliant. The, the shot of just the like the wind blowing through the trees and like he's coming, you know, eyes up, everyone on me, like oh, there's using no yeah. music. Oh, yeah, just, doom is coming. And that the line, you know, I am inevitable, is is so fitting for this character where we don't know where he is. Just it's scary. And then after he comes out and everyone is running at him and he's just slapping them aside mm-hmm. and they're they're giving it everything. Captain America goes in and he even gets a couple punches in. But and so that's um, true. I cringe so hard every time Thanos punches him in the side of the head. It's Oof. so painful. And yeah, the, actually. That theme, that music, we didn't talk. Another thing we should have talked about before, but that is like, I, I, like it's like the, the sacrifice theme you know, that plays when um he chucks Gamora off the cliff, uh, he and so now off. it's kind of coming back, and it's now I think it's kind of it's it's like a Vision and Wanda's sacrifice as you know she's trying to you know blow this thing out of his head, and everything is just it just keeps coming, and the music is building. You know, so they're all gone. It's just Wanda holding him back with one arm as she's you know, trying to destroy the stone with the other. And then she does it. It's destroyed. And we get that brief reprieve. And then I was like, what, what, what is happening? Like, this is a two-parter. What's going on? I yeah. think I think that that scene of that scene of Thanos coming out of the portal and then, you know, Wanda doing her whole thing, that pays testament of how powerful music can just move a scene because that scene would not be the same with Thanos, you know, like whenever he comes out of the portal and it goes, like the music, like every time he steps, that percussion, like he steps, 
He takes another step in the music in and out. It's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful and heartbreaking. And it, it, it just, it, it doesn't let us escape. It just anchors us in that moment. Like after she, you know, after she destroys the stone and there's just like, you know, I understand my child better than anyone. Like, just like, and you get that, that, that just that weird Thanos thing where he thinks he's being the benevolent God, but it's so horrible and creepy and like t- just tenderly touching her head. And you just hate him so much. And then he brings, you know, he brings vision back and kills him. Like, it's just so it hurts. Like just every step of the way there, you know, we get the, that hope and then they take it away. And then we get another element of hope Thor's back and he kills him. And oh yeah, he gives, he gives his line. You know, I, I told you, you die for that. And nope, he snaps his fingers and it's like, we just cannot catch a break. I think one of the most, like for me, at least one of the most like disturbing you know, quote unquote, disturbing images of the movie is when he yanks the stone out of Vision's head and his body just goes to black mm-hmm. and white, like that whole gray, and he chunks his body like a rag doll on the ground, and just his eyes are white. I don't know that yeah. that that just that image is just oh man, it's brutal. I, I hate it so much. Uh-huh. And it's that that little it's um cementing the fact that this is Thanos' movie. That, you know, after he does that, we go to Thanos. You know, we go inside of his head where he's seeing he sees Gamora again. And, you know, he's passed his final test. He's won. You know, he cost him everything, but he did it. Um, but then the whole sequence of dusting is just. It's hard to watch. It's the worst. It's so, it's so. Okay. Because again, this, this, I was talking about, you know, this movie had some of my favorite handout camera work and it's in this scene. Mm-hmm. Where where it's just the camera is just kind of loose and floating around, like constantly going into Dutch angles. And like, and we just have to watch one by one. They disappear. There's like this weird, like silent scream sound that Ugh. happens to everyone. And I, I know a lot of people say like, Oh, we know the kind of backstory doesn't hurt. Like, yeah, but we still had to watch our friends, watch their friends that- vanish. And, it, it, and, the f- and then it keeps going and going, you know, Quill, Drax, Mantis. And then, Peter, it's just like what's even what's even more. I think what's even more, almost more heartbreaking than seeing your heroes dissipate into dust is just how that everyone reacts to it. I think for me, that's even more powerful. Everyone is at their as at the top of their game in that whole sequence. I mean, you have T'Challa, you know, get up. This is no place to die. And then you have her react and her eyes go big and she's like, well, what the hell just happened? You know, like Mm -hmm. everyone's just like they don't no one is everyone's just so confused and ah, terrible. Yeah, I I've got a a rant against the people who just complain because you you had you saw that from everybody. Everybody was presenting that as if like they they're somehow elevated like like, well, you know, we all like the dates for new movies were announced. If you didn't know this, they're coming. It's like, oh, shut up! Like you, you're missing the point. This like we 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 know the hero's gonna win in every movie we watch. It's like this. We watch movies for the feelings along the way. Yeah, and and again, it's just yes. You're right. We know that the people who got the people in particular who got dusted. I knew that they weren't gonna be bringing back the people who legit died. And so that isn't like, okay, even if we tried, like, even if you wanted to be proven right, it's like, yeah, whatever, they're going to come back. We're still, we're got, we've got Heimdall, Loki, and Gamora and Vision are all like legit gone. So that's, that's quite a. Loki kind of, Loki kind of came back in the end game, but you know, 
kind of. Yeah, well, I mean, so did Gamora, but it's like this this person, this person with these memories and these experiences. Yeah, like they are they are gone, and despite them coming back there was still a moment in time where steve had to watch bucky get dust like even if we bring him back that doesn't eliminate the fact that like there was a point in steve's life where he turned and he saw his best friend die like that what is those moments aren't undermined because those those characters still had to feel that emotion they didn't know these were movies they didn't know these characters are coming back and so it, it's mm. I'm so much more concerned with in the moment in the in the context of this film stop talking about sequels and you know announcements and all this stuff the just pretend that these are real people that are being presented and imagine what these what this means for these characters. I was so over all of the stupid film bros being like, well, it could never have any impact because of the Marvel machine and all the announcements. Like, okay, shut up. <laughs> I mean, you, at that point, you're literally boasting about how you don't understand movies. <laughs> you don't know why movies work or, or don't work. Well, and like, Cap freaking watched his best friend die for the second time. I mean, he... <laughs> You know, I mean, in First Avenger, he fell out of a freaking train. Now he's watching his friend get dusted. I mean, it's like, how could you not <laughs> like, uh, feel the emotion in that, you know? Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good. And speaking of uncomfortable to watch, we talked about that, that the scene in from Homecoming where he's trapped into the rubble. And you just you feel wrong for being there and watching it. And Tom Holland is, is so good at, like, <laughs> creating those moments where he's just like, I don't want to go, please, sir. I don't want to go. Like... It's it's so raw and so there's so much you know his terror and fear and Tony's pain like it doesn't matter if like who cares as you said who cares if they come back later our characters still had to watch this happen and this you know, Tony's greatest fear you know and if you died I feel like that's on me Ugh, and he died it makes, it makes it and then you uh, see yeah and then you see and then you know after he gets dusted you see Tony. Like he has the dust on his hands and he's like kind of clasps oh. his hands, like wipes it off. And you're like, oh my, this is, this is Peter's body on your hands. And he's literally wiping it off. It's, her, it's mm. horrific, man. It's horrific. <laughs> and like it, 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 the movie just doesn't give us any breaks. It just does it again and again and again and again. And there's no music, which is like one of the, another part that really hurts. And then, and then we, you know, that final line of cap where it's like, what just happened? Like, oh God, like we lost, like, and that, that, you know, I was saying earlier, like we know that the hero is going to survive in every superhero movie we watch. And this time they didn't, this just, this, this doesn't happen in movies. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's wrong. We, we know this isn't supposed to happen and they just make us exist. And we cut to Thanos and he has this beautiful, peaceful moment with a really plaintive theme. And he smiles, the bastard. And, and then the credits where it's Thanos' theme over the credits in. And they're just rubbing it in. Yeah, it's just, it's such a ballsy move for the Russo brothers to go with this kind of ending. Because, the, I mean, we've never, ever seen anything like this before where, I mean, of course, you know, you've had endings where the heroes lose. You know, you have the Dark Knight where, you know, Batman's, you know, running away. You have Empire Strikes Back where the Rebels lost and Han's, you know, off with them off with the huts you know or whatever all of but those is, are sure to take a pause exactly, to give us hope yeah. again yeah exactly but the, 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 yeah this the, if were this movie the like were this movie the movie that they criticize it for being this would have ended 
with like uh scott coming out and being like i have an idea you know like it would have teased you know the the characters with with hope they would be like okay we're there there's something we can do you know like we're there's gonna be a way we can reverse this you know it'd be it would be and i'm not criticizing this because i i really love the ending but it'd be like the ending to batman versus superman with like the dust rising like that i think that makes sense Mm -hmm. for that particular movie because that works incredibly well with that movie's themes but here it's a movie about hope and not about despair exactly here they could doing that wouldn't have worked well with the themes doing that would have just been out of fear of audience reaction like we we can't end it like this but they're like no we're going to end like this yes you know we know there's another movie coming but we're not going to even drop the hint or the tease here yet we're sit in a year of despair and then we'll get back to you i mean even that- in the trailers for endgame they they show no sign of these heroes returning all the trailers all the marketing for endgame was just despair anguish <laughs> i mean it was just like no hope it was i mean mm-hmm. yeah as we, we like that's like in that, that that the end credits music where after the first the first section of credits and we get that sad piano solo of the avengers theme just slowly fading out and thanos will return and then they dust the avengers logo how dare you and this would be like going back to like Civil War, people all, you know, all these movies have no consequences. We know that Cap and Tony are just going to be friends in Infinity War. Nope, they, they never see each other once in this entire movie. And given the fact that they almost beat Thanos on Titan, if all if the Avengers had been together, they probably could have won. And now that the, the entire the 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 the, uh, the conflict of of um, of Civil War and all the egos and character flaws in that movie. How, the ramifications of that you know, reach out to the entire universe. The yeah, Civil War is a, is a very crucial movie. I mean, we say what you will. You know, of course, I have my Civil War, but say that is an extremely crucial movie for Infinity War for Tony and you know Cap's character as a whole. You know, and it's kind of and 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 again with the whole with the consequences of Civil War. As soon as you know, Banner was like, "We'll call him." You know, and he's like, you know, and 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 and, yeah, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you, you know, like, call me and Captain aren't speaking terms anymore. And then, therefore, the consequences of that is they were separated the whole movie and they didn't beat Thanos. Like you said, Gabe, if they were to get as if they were together, they may have had a chance against Thanos as a whole team, but they weren't. And I think mm-hmm. that's that that ties directly into Civil War with their arcs being, you know, having this bitterness towards each other. I can't think of a another movie that hurt me as badly, at least in this way. Like there are a lot of painful movies. I feel like a, a Monster Calls, where it's, I'm just like you're just completely raw by the end. But even that movie you know, leaves you with hope. I'm sure there are some like horrible nihilistic movies out there that are equally devastating. But at least in my experience, yeah, the the, the just emotional turmoil I walked out of the theater with this film was is entirely unique. Mm-hmm. And it's and it came from a freaking superhero movie, a comic book movie, you know, like something that you yeah. would never expect, which makes yeah. it even more unique. It's it really is something. Uh, anything out of, anything out of that, James? Uh, I guess the last thing I'd want to say about it is even beyond like just beyond the emotion of it. Um, we talked about through like various episodes uh, about scenes that just feel like transcendent, like they're just they 
elevate themselves beyond just hey we're a bunch of we're a bunch of people who paid money to go and sit down and watch stuff on a screen um talked about the scene in dr strange with her watching the rain and uh, for some reason, the the example my mind always brings up first is like the polishing scene in Toy Story Two. I'm just like, this is, this is pure filmmaking. This is incredible. Uh, it's just something that sticks with me. But the the dusting scene is one of those. Like I rem- whenever he snaps and he just falls back through the portal, like I I didn't know what to think, you know, like. You're like, Quill, did we just lose? Exactly. Like, wait, did, what's happening? And just the, with no sound, or not no sound, no score, and just that haunting sound of the dust happening and the ashes flying. One of the things that I love about the the concept of of them being dusted instead of just dying is the lack of closure. You know, there's no body to bury. It happened. Mo- like, it. there's no hope. There's no person to look at. There's there's nothing. It's as if, you know, you know, they're they're never going to be here again. There's no longer any print that they're gonna leave on this world. That that lack of of physicality to me just makes it even worse. And so, just having like watching this all happen, pulling out uh, the score and being so minimalistic with the sound. Uh, and that last shot of him sitting, that that score at the end is like I get goosebumps every single time I rewatch this. It's probably <laughs> call me uh, a nihilist or not a nihilist, just like a, a masochist or whatever. Like that's probably my favorite ending of any of the MCU films. Uh, it's just <laughs> it's just so perfectly done though. Like come like walking out of his cabin with him and sitting down and looking, looking out at what he perceives as a grateful universe finally and that holding on that smile and even that just note. like the pain in his face like the pain and exhaustion and weariness like he's been through a journey but yeah. it was worth and we've got because he he looks exhausted and then he does that like he kind of straightens up the soldiers holds his chin up a little bit and then we just cut to black it's. This all that to say, this scene to me is one of those moments of just like every aspect of filmmaking, the performances, the sound design, the like. In this case, the lack of score, which is a, I mean, a musical choice in itself, and knowing when not to use music, the visuals, everything. It's just all of the different aspects of filmmaking that you have to make decisions with, kind of coming together, culminating in a just a moment that is actually perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so moving into this score, like something pretty unparalleled happened here is where they got back the original composer again. Yes. Which they had Brian Tyler and Danny Elfman in in, in, uh, Age of Ultron, and that score is just pretty forgettable. Um, And Sylvester just comes back and absolutely knocks it out of the park with this score. Um, What what are some tracks that you guys want to highlight? So my history with the whole MCU score is I've heard you talk about this, Gabe, as well. And both of y'all talk about this through y'all's, you know, going through the series is that most, most, if not all MCU scores, except for maybe pretty much a handful of them are very forgettable. They're just like, oh, they're filler music. You know, they're just we, we have to add music for set action scene, you know, and Age of Ultron is one of those scores that I unequivocally hate. <laughs> I do not like that score. Um, but I have been a fan of Alvin Silvestri's work. I think that 
Cap, the first Avenger, was when I truly developed a love for him and his work. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I I through and through love this score to death because I am a huge fan of the first Avenger score, especially the first, you know, Captain America, the first Avenger and the first Avengers, the first Avengers. Yeah. And so uh, overall, I just loved it. I'll I'll highlight a few tracks in a minute, but overall, I just absolutely adored the score. Yeah. I honestly on rewatch and then especially through re-listen, I'm tempted to say this is my favorite score of the MCU. Um, I, I don't think it contains my favorite track, but if we're just talking a score that works with the film and works with the scenes and pulls you through all of the feelings you need to, I think this is the most consistently great score um, in the series. It's it's such a perfect musical reflection of the tone of the film. Um and one of the things that I know that, that I really love about this score is it creates a lot of like really quick musical cues. Like they happen, they're super short, but they instantly like signal some sort of change. Um, like the dun dun when like anytime Thanos does anything, you hear that. And it's like it's signing to you that, you know, something like he's got the upper hand now. Um, and they kind of, they use it's it's not exactly like it's not a new theme, but it's being used in a new and like what I think is a pretty cool creative way of, of taking the last notes of the Avengers themes like the dun dun dun, um, but like like whenever Spider Man shows up and he he grabs something or like any any hero gets the upper hand in the especially in the earlier half of the film where it's not quite as just mercilessly depressing, like whenever something happens, you get those those quick notes and then um, like the. There's a very mysterious kind of sound, like almost ethereal sound, like whenever we go to Vormir or whenever we're flying through Nivaldir, um, or all of these, like it's that same kind of sound. And so there's these little bitty musical cues that kind of, um, it's repetitious enough with them through like very similar events to where this sound is just synonymous with that. And so when you sprinkle those in a film that has enough like lengthy, amazing pieces like in their own right, like with the sacrifice theme or that final, uh, the track porch when he's there. Like, it's just such a full and robust and emotionally charged score that I, I do think from beginning to end, it's probably the one that impresses me the most. Yeah, so running through a couple of tracks that I want to mention. Um, the first one, Undying Fidelity. Uh, it's where we get Thanos' theme. It's a very complicated, like layered theme. Like it's not something you could actually like sit down and hum for the most part. Um, but it's very, but it's very um, recognizable. When they do the light strings in that track, when he's got the the tesseract and he just crushes it, it's like a tragedy of a theme. Like it, it's very somber and sad and plaintive. It's very similar to the the moment in Return of the King whenever uh, Deagle or or Smeagol, No, no, yeah, it is Deagle. Whenever he's pulled underwater and he sees the ring for the first time, it's it's a very similar kind of like. This is the beginning of something that's wrong. Yeah. Other than this, uh, we both made promises. Um, it, it's uh, it's this really quiet, mournful piece. Uh, we get like the beginnings of the sacrifice theme that plays on Vormir. Um, then like the Thanos theme comes in later. Um, this help arrives at the first, mm. uh, you know, first uh, Avengers thing where it's like really brassy and like militant and hard edge. It's really really cool sounding. The, um, the playing that over that image is just incredible. Yeah, and there's this even for you, which is like my, 
most and least favorite piece of music from this thing, which is the full-on sacrifice theme where, like, it instantly just puts a lump in your throat. It's, it's yeah. like, tra- uh, transcendent tragedy. It's so big. It kind of it just, like, overpowers you with just this, all the, the sound and emotion that comes out of it. And, of course, paired with that scene, we didn't actually talk about that specific scene, uh, but that specific scene is horrifying and amazing and just it's cinema, Mr. Scorsese. It's yes. cinema. <laughs> yes. Um, interesting. Like, it's just like the use of fades in that scene, which is like a completely, it's like completely unique in the, the Russo's entire stint at the, uh, in the MCU is like a really yeah. unique kind of touch. They put that. Th- I think is very effective. It feels very surreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just that whole thing. It's surreal and horrifying. And yeah, it's really, really well done. And, and you know, if not for the, um, the finale would probably be the most painful sequence in the uh, MCU. Then there's charge, which is this building beat of anticipation and tiny bits of like the Avengers theme. And it's, it's so, it's really exciting kind of blood pumping with charge. This may be kind of, you know, controversial, controversial with people's opinions, but I really, I, I love the whole, the, so whenever they, you know, whenever, you know, um, Charles screams Wakanda forever, you know, and it plays that bum, 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 bum. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely adore that running like whenever they're running um and i love that and i do love how they play it in uh in game whenever uh, t'challa has the infinity gauntlet they they play that same um oh, really? string of notes whenever yeah whenever he the, the whole bum 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 he like it go and, and because in like uh in game you know he's like give it give me the gauntlet and it goes like bum 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 and it plays the same theme so i, th- I think that's a kind of a cool little huh. bit but yeah that's yeah that's my favorite kind of section of that of charge charge is one that i frequently listen to on repeat that's interesting i'll have to listen to that for that um then there's a forge which is like this really exciting build-up there's like these angelic vocals and it just keeps building and building um and then there's that like kind of high brass note that keeps going like the after thor's kind of collapsed and we don't know if it worked it's like and then finally, when he gets back to Wakanda, and it's not actually the portals theme because it, it's it was used way back in Avengers, but that you know, dun 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 like that. It kind of comes in the triumphant Avengers theme is like it's everything is fixed and it's all perfect and happy. Then I uh, get that arm and I feel you. I'm more focusing on the I feel you part, which is just that you know that we talked about that you know, that that B that dun dun whenever like the, the doom is coming, Thanos is here. Um, then we get like the the full on. Like the sacrifice theme mixed with Thanos's theme, kind of layered it, layered over top, is just tragic and swelling, and like everything you felt at the at the sacrifice scene, like um, kind of amplified. Um, then porch, which is, you know, Thanos is like really quiet, tragic. It's it's just a beautiful piece of music, so haunting. Um, but also like there's like a sense of finality, like a noble tragedy in that scene where like. The music is telling you to feel at least you know, sad, but feel good because, you know, what happened, what, what was supposed to happen, happened, and which is why it's, it's so it's so like violating in that moment when you're so depressed. Um, then finally, there's the Infinity War, which is, you know, which is the full on Thanos theme, triumphant, uh, but that that, that quiet, heartbreaking uh, piano solo of the Avengers theme right at the end, just the final fu to the audience. It's so good. Oh, I was going to say one little, um, I think James might have mentioned this earlier, but one little string of um, 
notes that I love that they play. They play they play when Iron Man is firing the rockets at Thanos in a in the Battle of Titan. But whenever it plays the bum 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 but it's like the very high high like energetic. You know, I, I think you describe it, James. It's like it's at the end of the Avengers. The yeah, but it's, it's like it's like a really yeah. t- consolidated version of like yeah, that ending yeah, part. It, yeah, it goes like bum 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 Like I, I that that's also kind of a little something that he added to it that I really enjoy. And I think the reason the music stands out so well in this movie, I think they finally figured out the sound mixing. Where yes. very very rarely in previous MCU films do they allow the music to just kind of make the scene. Like it's something that I think that that made Star Wars so iconic is where Lucas would just allow John Williams to essentially like create the entire mood of the scene. And just the music kind of just overpowers everything else. And it's, it's not something that happens often. It's happened a lot in the first Thor movie and a couple times in the Avengers. But quite often, it, it, the, 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 the score kind of plays second fiddle to just the sound design, which is you know, it's fine. It's a choice. But this movie, the, the score is so much it, – it's played up so much more. And I think the Russo's really just wove it in perfectly to match the emotion and often kind of guide the emotions of the film in a way that – that doesn't happen all that often in the MCU. And it's just absolutely fantastic music. There's some uh, additional tracks that I wanted to highlight uh, is the first one, uh, travel delays. It's, it's what plays as we hear Kenneth Branagh, who, who voices the, uh, the SOS call or, Mm -hmm. or like the call for help at the beginning. And, you know, as he's rejoice. Also, Ebony Maw is awesome. Like by far my favorite of the children of Thanos he, I really, really love him as a side villain. Uh, but yeah, just that that slow... It's really just two notes. It's like the slow rise and then the slow fall. And it's so ominous. And it does what scores should do. Like that opening with that, with just this somber, such a downer. Like it promises stakes mm-hmm. um, from the outset. I really love that. Um, it's so foreboding. Yeah. And uh, I really like the one, uh, What More Could I Lose?, that that moves into that very kind of mysterious uh there's just something twinkly about the score Uh, it's not just within that track i I chose this one because it it was like maybe the easiest to highlight that sound but they played a lot of yeah like that that music i can't say it (laughs) yeah it's like a it's like we're moving into like high fantasy at that moment yes all right. Uh, so let's move into our star rating and our ranking. Uh, Sam, you go first. Uh, how? Uh, what? How do you? What do you give this film out of five stars? And uh, how do you rank the MCU up till now? Alrighty. Um. So for the for for my star ranking of the film, I go ahead and give it a five out of five. I know that I, you know, obviously voiced some complaints about some very small things, but everything that I've voiced my complaints about are extremely minor to what this movie brings. Like just the small. Just the hundreds, hundreds of small moments make up for the for like the lack of whatever the case may be for the fall. So I give this movie a solid five out of five stars. And then for the MCU ranking, I went ahead and did the whole MCU. Um, okay. So my ranking is take this as you will. I know it's probably going to be very controversial, but um, <laughs> so for uh, number one, I have the Avengers, the first Avengers. Number two, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Number three, Avengers: Infinity War. Number four, the beloved. Kenneth Branagh's Thor. Uh, number five, uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. Number six, Captain America, the first Avenger. Number seven, Thor Ragnarok. Number eight, Guardians, 
two, number nine, Ant-Man, number 10, Endgame, uh, number 11, Civil War, number 12, Guardians 1, uh, number 13, Iron Man, number 14, Iron Man 3, 15, Captain Marvel, 16, Doctor Strange, 17, Ant-Man and the Wasp, 18, Black Panther, 19, Spider-Man Homecoming, 20, Age of Ultron, 21, Iron Man 2, 22, Incredible Hulk, and finally, 23, Thor The Dark World. That is a list. <laughs> you know, it started off so yep, well. <laughs> hey, what about you, James? Uh, so I give this... Uh, this is a really hard one for me. Um, I think I have it four out of five on Letterboxd. Cause I do think that uh, on rewatches, some of just the... Not the entire... Not, not inconsequential, but I do think that there is a good bit of fat on the Thor side and it asked like an, an aspect that I'm not always the biggest fan of that. We didn't talk a whole lot about here is I think humor is kind of a mixed bag here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there yeah. are things that you dislike that I do laugh at, but then I think there are other things that maybe you laugh at that. I dislike. Drax and, being invisible is not funny. Okay. I mean, it's funny. Oh, as no, a skit. Come on. It's, it's funny as a skit. It's like if this was an SNL thing, cause I think that scene is done. Well, I think the acting is funny. I think the scene in isolation is funny. I don't I think it. it works in the film. <laughs> Yeah, it comes uh, after that really with... dramatic moment of, uh, you know, the uh, emotional intimacy between um, Star-Lord and uh, Gamora. Then that abomination shows up and I hate it. Damn it, man. You're bringing my parade. I love all that humor. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I unequivocally love all the humor in this movie. That's one thing that I didn't really emphasize enough. But I think all the humor hits. But, you know. Yeah. I, for me, it's – I think – there there are enough moments like there are several moments of levity that i absolutely love i think i think the uh, get lost squidward is like <laughs> god tier humor for movies um it, it's just what master is even bits of must well say jesus <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes I've, that I line freaking kills me every I time uh, one of my i think my my favorite character one of my favorite moments for star lord is is uh, talking about the dance off to save the universe. I was not thinking, oh, you mean like in Footloose? Exactly like in Footloose. So, is this still the greatest movie <laughs> ever? It never was. <laughs> and Star Lord. Okay, that that one might be my favorite like moment of humor. His face, his look of like just up being like that would be like if somebody, I mean, it'd be like if somebody said Lord of the Rings is never the best. Like just the look of defeat on his face. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I there's even moments of humor that I do laugh at and I think are funny. I just I kind of wish they weren't in this film. So I do think sometimes humor undermines uh, moments here and there. Although I wonder what like like this film is hor- horrifyingly miserable as it is. Like, what would it look at, like without that relief, without without that levity? And maybe that maybe it's, that's where I'm kind of coming from is is like that these moments of humor kind of ease the tension a little bit, but at the same time, it's like an uncomfortable. And they're they're also lying to us that this is a normal MCU movie and we're not going to have our soul destroyed. Yeah, I, I think though, it's it, it it does kind of help illustrate some people's complaints with it that even in the darkest one, we're joking like quite a bit. Um, so I, I do think it would have it would have done a bit more to like ease some people's criticisms. Like, okay, guys, humor- we- in the last like forty minutes, I guess there's die space dogs die. I guess that's kind of funny. I am Steve Rogers. 
But like that—that's kind of in the happy moment. No, I mean, there's that. And there's like, there, I'm gonna get that arm. There's the him holding rocket <laughs> but up. Like, and spinning all of that around. I think is appropriate because we're happy again because Thor's back. Well, yeah, you know? but but that's that's what I'm saying. Like, it's just there's there's still. I mean, that's one of the things that Sam brought up when we whenever we first talked about it, it was like the surprise at just how funny it actually is. Like this movie is often for me like kind of hilarious, and that's that's not always a problem. I I think anybody who says this like we shouldn't joke in serious movies is stupid. I even think that there's in Bruges is one of my favorite movies of all time. And there are like, there are individual like minute long scenes that are hilarious and tragic in the same scene. So I think Jojo rabbit. And I haven't seen it. And I know that I'm going to love it. I haven't. Yeah. But, um, all that to say, um, so I, I think I give it four, but what's weird is I enjoy it almost as much as like my favorites, like my, my subjective enjoyment of it is like top tier and so well it also is a top tier film for me as well which i guess i'll just i'll say by moving into my rankings uh i i have number one the winter soldier number two avengers number three infinity war number four civil war number five guardians of the galaxy number six iron man number seven spider-man homecoming number eight thor number nine iron man three number 10 captain america the first avenger number 11 thor ragnarok number 12 age of ultron Number 13, Doctor Strange. Number 14, Black Panther. Number 15, Ant-Man. Number 16, Iron Man 2. Number 17, The Incredible Hulk. Number 18, Guardians Volume 2. And number 19, The Dark World. So for me, I give it four and a half stars. You know, it, it, it is, I think, kind of an achievement in blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, you know, It makes me experience emotions that, I, that like even dramas really get out of me. Uh, I think most of the action is pretty top-notch and incredible. It, it's this it's incredibly tight the narrative is just constantly flowing there's like sure you said there's a little bit of fat on the thor and i I kind of agree but even then like that is really well paced and really well done like in its own context like it just the film just moves it's it's so tight and it's just this it feels like just this one single experience that is you know starts with hope and just ends in absolute misery uh it just it works really well for me so i get four and a half stars um, so my ranking, it is number one, Captain America Civil War, two, the Avengers, three, Guardians of the Galaxy, four, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, five, Avengers Infinity War, six, Iron Man, seven, Thor, eight, Age of Ultron, nine, Doctor Strange, ten, Spider-Man Homecoming, eleven, Thor Ragnarok, twelve, Ant-Man, thirteen, Iron Man, three, fourteen, The Incredible Hulk, fifteen, Captain America, the First Avenger, sixteen, Guardians of the Galaxy, two, seventeen, Black Panther, eighteen, Iron Man, two, and nineteen, Thor, The Dark World. Just really kind of a truncated version of the box office and whatnot. Uh, it earned, on its initial release, it earned uh, $678 million domestically and $1,369,000,000 in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $2,048,000,000 on its uh, basically $315 to $400 million budget. Just there's a lot of money going around there. Uh, I don't know how to process that much money. Like those are Those are just like unnatural numbers to me. Yeah, although Black Panther made more than it domestically, which is just also insane. So as far as the, the MCU, it's the second highest grossing MCU film uh, behind Endgame, which made all the money, literally all of it. You have no money in your pocket because Kevin Feige has it. <laughs> as far as like the, the total highest grossing films ever, it uh, stands at number four behind Endgame, Avatar, Titanic, and The Force Awakens. So as far as awards, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects, but lost to First Man. Um First Man was amazing. Although this, like Thanos, I think alone 
I would have been completely happy if this one too. As far as legacy, I think most people really like. I think it's overall pretty well regarded in the MCU, as, as far as I can tell. Yeah, because at, at this point, we're no longer having to be like pe- people are no longer figuring out what they think about the MCU. And aside from these, like who ultimately are just kind of like minority opinions in terms of like this didn't work for me. I don't want to see this. That's like the exception. I think people who are on board with the MCU really love this. All right. So that was our review of a very long review of Avengers Infinity War. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd like to ask you again to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating review. Um, if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there's Franchise League Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we're on both of those as at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseLeaguePodcast.com. And uh, thanks for coming on, Sam. And where can people find you? Um, you can pro- follow prim- follow me primarily on Letterbox. Uh, I'm there as at S Dodd, and then you can follow me on Instagram at at Sam R Dotson. And then you can also find me over on Facebook. Um, I'm over there as a member with James and Gabe, and our friend Josh and the Outer Rim, the best Star Wars group ever, and where we have lots of good, lots of fun conversations about Star Wars with. And, you know, lots of cool Star Wars stuff happened with Rise of Skywalker, Mandalorian, and Full Swing, and some good stuff over there. So, yeah, you can follow me over there on all those pages. And what about you, James? Well, he already did our plug for us, so. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's a, that's awesome. It's, it's a good thing whenever a guest plugs your own stuff. It's like, okay, we're doing good. <laughs> so, yes, definitely over on the Outer Rim, where uh, uh, you, myself, and our friend Josh, uh, along with our other friend uh, Jeff, admin, uh, and you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, I'm also on Letterboxd. I'm there as Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Uh, and I also have a YouTube channel uh, called Greenery01 where I put out these uh, movie music video things. All right, so next week, um, we may be taking a break from the MCU to talk about the uh, the first season of Star Wars Resistance. We're going to see how the schedule works out. It might be Ant-Man and the Wasp or it might be uh, Star Wars Resistance. We're one of those two. So, yeah, that'll be, that's what's coming up. So, until next week, we will see you in whatever it is we're covering. You should have gone for the head. <laughs>